ready for a very fun commission. Thank you all for coming. Alin, can you I'm hear me? This is Stephen. Order and ask the secretary to call the roll. President Brodkin. I'm here. Vice President Cervantes. Here. Commissioner Jordan. Present. Commissioner Laco. Present. Commissioner Moses. Present. And Commissioner Spingola. Present. You have a quorum. Great. And the first thing we have to do is this resolution we've done uh, a dozen times about recognizing that we still have a COVID uh, crisis and that we have to allow teleconferencing and make uh, adjustments for that, as well as members of the commission can not come if they have a COVID COVID related illness, otherwise the commissioners come in person. So um, I need a motion to that effect to approve this resolution we've approved a dozen times. I move. I second. Uh, will you call the roll? Yes. 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 Motion passes. Thank you. So I'll go to oh, does we don't have to call the roll on that? I mean, public comment on that. Um, is uh, taking public comment on anything that is not on the agenda that anybody wants to comment on? Hi there. I'm Molly Brown. I'm a District 1 resident and I've been a I've been supporting the Juvenile Justice Providers Association for the past 4 years. I'm also the mother of 4 adult children. And I was their garden throughout their childhood and um, I know where they went to school. I know how they're doing. I know where they live. I know how much rent they pay. I know who's struggling and I know who needs extra help. Now, what you may not know is that you have 66 youth under your care for whom they are now in extended foster care, and we don't know one thing about them other than that there are 66 of them. And I'm here hoping today to impress upon you the importance of knowing more about those young people, because what we do know is that they have successfully completed probation. And I know the chief cares about them because she has created a specialized unit of workers who focus only on them and they've created resources for them, a resource list, and tried to find them housing. But what you don't know is, are they housed? Are they working? Are they in school? They are in extended foster care up until age 21, and we don't know anything about them. So I'm hoping that you may impress upon the chief and her staff to provide a separate report peeling off those 66 youth because they are not on probation and providing more information about how they are doing. Because at this point in time, the probation department serves as their de facto guardian, and you as the oversight body has to know how they're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And by the way, for my fellow commissioners, these are the young people who are known as the AB12, young people who show up in our reports. And we will take this under advisement. Uh, the rules of the game are that we are not allowed to talk about things that are on the public agenda, but when we think about the next agenda, we can think about this testimony. Um, we now have 
Well, I'm going to take something out of order if Casey is here. You lucked out today. There has been a significant request that we take item number six. So I am going to introduce you to the assistant district attorney, Casey Lee, who has done an enormous amount of work um, for the young people in our system um, and uh, has a lot of things to her credit, new programs, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about them, Casey. And she is also, by the way, the only Chinese speaking special crimes lawyer in the state of California. So, um, which is kind of amazing. So, Casey, the, the floor is yours. We really want to hear what's happening in the district attorney's office and what you've been able to accomplish. Thank you. Um, and I actually thought I was going second, so I thought I had a little more time to prepare. Mm -hmm. I just need some help loading. Um, I prepared a, sh a short PowerPoint. Can anybody help her? Okay, perfect. I was just going to show you. Yeah. There we go. So, if you could tell us how long you've been at the office, Casey, just a little bit of background so people know who you are. Sure. Is this, can you see this screen here? No, not yet. No. I see a pop up on that one. So, keep watching that. Okay. Do I need to do anything? Oh, I'm not need to, you For my benefit, you need to talk. Out if you possibly can into the microphone. Okay. Is there anyone who can help me load the PowerPoint? Because there are some charts and graphs that I or it's loaded. I mean, it's pulled up. I just want to be able to share. Maria, do you know how to do this? I think that the tech people may be coming back up here. Yeah. I don't see it. There it is. Yep. What do we do? Okay, there we go. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I am very honored to be here today. And my name is Casey Lee. I'm the managing attorney of the juvenile unit. Sorry, this is Stephen from. This is Stephen. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Yes. This is. Uh, uh, I'm helping out with the online um, conference. Are you going to share the camera so people can see you, or it's not going to have the camera? I just want to make sure we didn't see any content from from your side. So. So we have the IT guy coming up from City Hall. Um, oh, okay. So just want to make sure. In a couple minutes, but um, can you see the PowerPoint up right now? Uh, no, there's no camera, so that's why we don't see the live. Are you sure that's on the side? Great, but let's start. We have the screen, which she's going to speak. So I don't. We don't need the audio, right? I mean the. Camera right this minute. And I think the question is, can the audience hear? I mean, right. can the virtual? The public cannot see her. They can't. Yeah, see that's her not. Song. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. But, but they can never see her. No, but no, they, they can't. can't. See her. They can't see the slides. See well, oh. yeah. So, so I'm, I'm not sure if the projector is connected to Pauline's computer. I can share the screen from my side. 
So everyone can see it then from that point. That would be perfect. Okay, I'm going to share my screen, uh, um, but you've had already told me which side I need to point to. Just give me one second. Okay. <clears throat> so. Okay. So. Is there anybody on the line, Pauline? I know. We can, I can see the screen. This is Jana. I can't see anyone's faces or anything, but I can see the PowerPoint. That, that's all we're going to need for now because it is, she's going to speak from the PowerPoint. Okay, okay. You, you can start. Thank you, everyone. And I'm sorry for uh, all this inconvenience. So, my name is Casey Lee. I'm the man managing attorney of the juvenile unit of the San Francisco District Attorney's Office. And um, and I guess I'm here today to give everyone an update on how the juvenile unit has been running and how we have been kind of doing business in the past two years. But before I do that, I wanted to give a little bit of background on myself, um, just to put this all into context. I was born here in San Francisco, and until age 10, I was raised in the Excelsior District. That's a 94134. And over in victim services, we know this uh, zip code quite well because it's one of four zip codes that are disproportionately impacted by violent crime in San Francisco. So, you know, I'm familiar with that neighborhood. And um, over the years, I had watched my friends uh, drop out of school, enter the juvenile system. And so this issue was very close to my heart. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, when we talk about like, I don't know how often uh, someone from our office actually comes to address this commission here, um, but what is the role of a juvenile prosecutor? Maybe that's what some of you may be thinking right now. And it seems pretty straightforward, right? Prosecutors hold people accountable. They are here to enforce public safety. And so that translates into charging cases and prosecuting cases, but it's actually a little bit more than that. Um, and it's not just me saying it, but what it's what our law says, because if you step back and you take a look at our juvenile system, what is the purpose? Like, what are we trying to accomplish here in our juvenile system? Is it just holding kids accountable when they break the law or is there something? Is there a bigger picture? Right? Should we not be doing what we can treating this as a point of intervention to disrupt the pipeline to adult court and ultimately stop the cycle of violence and reduce crime in the long term? Right, that's what we're trying to do uh, in juvenile court. And it's what I'm saying is actually written into our law. It's I'm going to do a little bit of law here and it's just the. Of course. Oh, I see. Okay, change change page, please. Okay, so thank you. Yeah, it's just the next three sides where we talk about the law, but I think this is really important when we talk about our juvenile system. It's not just the prosecutor's office, not just the district attorney's office. The entire system is built built on this bedrock principle. Like what are we here for? It's to it's to disrupt this pipeline. And it says in under welfare and institutions code 202, it's to 
provide care treatment and guidance to the kids. Care treatment and guidance that's consistent with public interest, the public interest, public safety, and also in the best interest of the youth. Next slide, please. Well, I'll, I'll just. What this also says, um, okay, it's okay. Um, and so we hear this a lot. I think I'm sure everyone here has heard that before care treatment and guidance. But if we read a little bit deeper into welfare and institutions code 202, it also says the juvenile court and all other public agencies charged with enforcing, interpreting, administering this law. So that includes the district attorney's office. We must act in um, and it talks about public safety, uh, redressing victims, but also acting in the best interest of the youth. And that includes, next slide. And it includes, this is what it says, participants in the juvenile justice system. So that's you know, juvenile probation, the courts, district attorney's office. We must hold ourselves accountable for results. So we're not just charging and prosecuting, we're holding ourselves accountable for results, the outcomes in juvenile court. And that means improving the system performance in a vigorous and ongoing manner. So I don't think like this language here, I don't think we practice it enough in juvenile court. Um, and that's what we've been trying to do in the past two years is holding us ourselves accountable for this. And in the past, and it's not just San Francisco, it's up and down the state, a lot of uh, district attorney's office offices are focused on, um, sometimes a little bit too focused on just the the charging, like what charges can we resolve this case for? Too much focus here and not as much focus on outcomes. What are the, what is the plan for this youth when they come into our system? What is the plan to make sure they're not going into the adult system? We're not graduating them into the adult system. And that's what we've tried to do differently. <clears throat> Next slide, please. <clears throat> this is a snapshot of what the last two years have looked like. Um, it's actually, it goes beyond that to the last five years or so, but you can see like in the past two and a half years, the volume of cases that we had presented to us from the uh, from the juvenile probation department, they get their cases from SFPD primarily, have really gone down almost by half. Um, and that may be because, you know, it's taking into consideration uh, the research on tr treating kids like kids, diverting cases when we should, um, and sending over just the most serious cases. So this is what it reflects, but the volume has really come down. Next slide, please. <clears throat> but although the volume of cases has come down almost by half, the cases that we have diverted, so that we have sent to diversion programs has gone up um, pretty significantly. If you take a look at 2018, is about 10% of the cases. And then fast forward to 2021, it's about 19 to 20% of the cases, that's double. Um, and why do we use diversion programs? We use diversion programs because one, research tells us 
where we can, we should keep kids out of the formal process. Bringing them into the formal process, um, it, it creates a negative stigma. It increases, in some cases, recidivism. Um, there's labeling and so on. So where we can achieve the results that we want to, while avoiding the formal process, we should be doing that. Um, and so that's why, that's kind of what we tried to do in the past two years also is to build out our, um, our diversion programs and to strengthen the existing diversion programs. <clears throat> so one such program is our Make It Right program that uh, Chief Miller was actually, um, I'm gonna say Chief Miller, <laughs> who is actually the, the founder or creator of this program. And it's still, a, it's a wonderful program. Um, and should I go into it a little bit? Are people familiar with the Make It Right program? Okay, so the Make It Right program, it's a restorative justice pro conferencing program, and we've heard about restorative justice a little bit in the, you know, sometimes in the media and just kind of, uh, you know, just hearing people use the term, but, and some people think, oh, well, it's just a slap on the wrist or something like that, but it's actually, you know, it's, it's pretty intensive when you get to know what the program really entails. So it's a pre-filing diversion program, and what that means is when we get the case, that we choose not, and we decide this is suitable for make it right, we don't file the case at all. We hold it and refer it to this third party. It's a different agency, it's a nonprofit, and they work with the youth and they work with the harmed party, the victim, as they get ready for the conference, the restorative justice conferencing. And the conference itself is, uh, it's pretty structured. It's a two to three hour facilitated conference. So you can imagine, the difference between a youth coming into court and the judge telling them, you know, you did something bad and you're going to do community service and you're on probation for X amount of time um, versus having to sit down with the person that they harmed over the course of one to two hours or more and take responsibility for what they did and say, I'm sorry, and show insight uh, for what they did and then agree to actually make amends and to carry out those agreements. It's a much more, the latter is, the latter is a much more um, impactful um, experience. And so that program itself is a six to eight month program. <clears throat> How we kind of strengthen that program is, you know, we know that the kids coming into our program, they are, um, you know, I'm gonna say like, the, not just the majority, but well over 90% of the kids who come into our program have experienced extreme trauma. Um, and so just going through this process itself, we recognize that, you know, they needed something more. These are high needs children. Um, so we asked that it's actually park um, step in and starting from intake. So as soon as the youth goes and meets with this nonprofit, um, they're supported by case management and therapy up until the time that they get there, they uh, go to the restorative justice conference. So that's the make it right program. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the unaccompanied children's assistance pro program. <clears throat> so, in the past few years, we've seen an uptick of youth who have been arrested for drug sales, drug sales crimes. And usually when they come into our system, um, we find that they're unaccompanied and they're also undocumented. And um, if they were to be processed through the system, so prosecuted, brought into court, what usually happens is that they're placed on probation for about six months to a year. And 
if they don't reoffend, um, then case is terminated. But during that period of time, they're usually not provided any services or very, very little services. Nothing's changing in their lives. They're then um, stuck with this sustained petition, this adjudication that has negative or adverse immigration consequences. And then it's a cycle. Then they, because circumstances haven't changed, pick up a new arrest, they come in, come back in and cycle through until they make it to adult court. So seeing that this was the cycle, we reached out to multiple agencies to see who had ideas on how to do things differently. And we started this program with the USF, so the University of San Francisco Law School's Immigration Policy Clinic. And that program has dedicated law students and migration studies grad students who work with these children. And they, it's a very intensive program that they have there. The kids are required to, if they're under 18, required to enroll into high school. So what that means is they're getting their documents from the Office of Refugee Resettlement and then working with typically Oakland Unified um, because the kids live in Oakland. So the Oakland Unified School District for enrollment, they enroll them into Soccer Without Borders. They sign them up with the case manager. And then we wanted to address one other piece and that was trauma because a lot of these kids who have come all the way from typically Central America to the United States have experienced trauma. And, you know, just like most teenagers, they're not thrilled about talk therapy. And uh, we were working at the time with Stanford University. They had an art therapy pilot project. And we said, well, why don't you find bilingual instructors and work with these kids in the unaccompanied children's assistance program? And so they did. They actually created this program, launched it over at Oakland Unified. Um, and the kids in our program completed the Stanford art therapy pilot as well. Um, so these are kind of like the intensive wraparound diversion programs that were created. There's also the after program and the CARC program. Um, and I can answer questions about those, but I'm not gonna go into too much detail about those. Um, next slide, please. <clears throat> I do wanna talk about this a little bit too. Um, and that's the practice of charging strikes. Um, strike offenses, juvenile strikes are no different from adult strikes in that they last forever. Um, they have long-term consequences, meaning for the most, I mean, they cannot be erased from the youth's record. The youth will not qualify for automatic sealing when um, they have a strike. And that means when they are terminated from probation, even if they complete successfully, they'll have this on their record. It can impact job, uh, job seeking. It can impact housing if they have subsidized housing, right? So some people may say, well, you know, if you can't, if you did the time then, or did the crime, then you have to serve out the consequences. But these are adult consequences um, that are imposed on sometimes juvenile conduct. And we have to see if we are going to impose these consequences, it should be for conduct that is serious, that should warrant these adult consequences. And so in the past two years, two and a half years, we have been exercising due to uh, prosecutorial discretion, not just indiscriminately charging strikes when we can or when we could. And what that looks like is still holding youth accountable. You could still charge somebody with a crime, with a felony to bring them into the system 
to impose interventions, but not necessarily strikes unless they're <clears throat> unless it's warranted. And um, you can see the numbers here. The strikes that were charged in the past. Uh, comparison in 2018 in 120 cases there were strikes that were charged and if you look at 2021 that number drops down to 29 um, so it's a significant it's a significant change and we were still able to bring youth into the system for these serious cases still impose serious consequences in some cases if it, it was warranted, removing youth from the home for a period of time, um, you know, but we didn't need to kind of impose this most very, you know, most serious consequence, which was to charge them uh, with the strike and have the strike remain on their record for life. Um, next slide, please. Okay, and some other changes that um, you may have seen in court, those of you who actually work in our system. One is bringing victim services, uh, having victim services play a more active role in juvenile court. And that's important because in the, in the past, what would happen is um, we had victims coming in, but they didn't understand the juvenile court process. And now we have a dedicated victim advocate who's been trained in trauma-informed approaches, but also juvenile law, brain development, and understanding the purpose of our court. And so we don't have necessarily victims always coming in to seek retribution or vengeance for what happened, but you know, coming in knowing that the purpose of juvenile court is rehabilitation. So there's that expectation that's set in the beginning, and when and they're invited to come into court, which is actually their right under Marcy's law. And when they come in and they're privy to all of these conversations that take place in court, and they can see who these children are, um, the challenges that they they face. And what everyone in the system, including the probation department and the court is trying to do to help this youth, it puts into context what happened to them and um, it's healing for them. And they sometimes want to be part of this solution. Um, and in the past two years, we have seen a lot more restorative dialogues in court than I have ever seen. Uh, I had seen in the past. Um, the second thing change is a lot of focus on plans. So district attorneys in our court uh, who handle our calendar are trained in um, trauma and adolescent development, and they know how to scrutinize plans and see whether or not these are robust plans. And one thing I do wanna say is that <clears throat> in San Francisco, we still have kind of this binary approach where when youth are in the system, um, they're either in juvenile hall where there's no liberty at all, um, they're behind, you know, they're in a cell, and there are programs that they participate in, but it's it's extremely structured. And then when released, um, it's not as intensive as it, it needs to be in some cases, because these are still high needs children. There's no, uh, you know, it's, it's these two extremes that we're dealing with. And so our prosecutors are actually trained to scrutinize plans and see how they translate in real life. When a plan says this nonprofit is going to be working with the youth and they're going to check in with them three times a week and this therapist checks in with them twice a week it looks like a very robust plan but then we ask the tough questions like 
what is a check-in? And, and then we learn, oh, it's a text, me text message exchange. Well, that's not enough for this youth who's, you know, had all this trauma and is, is going through a transition in their lives and they need much more support. So we, they're trained to kind of really examine them and see how these plans play out in real life and demand more robust plans. Um, the third is victim impact statements, and that's just, you know, pushing for more reconciliatory statements when we can. Um, and the fourth one, and this is really true in CSEC cases, is that we need to have more case coordination in our courts. So in the past two years, um, and I say mostly a lot in CSEC cases because in CSEC, so that's commercial sexually exploited children, these, these youth are supported by multiple agencies. Sometimes it's HSA, um, and then they have a number of other nonprofits helping them. And so uh, oftentimes everyone's working in a silo and the case, it's, there's no coordination of services. And so we have been the ones to bring everyone together and uh, put together like coordinated plans to support the youth. Next slide, I think that's all I have. Thank you, Casey. That, that was great. <laughs> um, I, I am totally impressed. Do any of my fellow commissioners have questions or comments? Thoughts? Can I, can I ask a question that you, I'm sorry, is that right? No, good. Yeah, okay. And this is uh, Julia Cervantes. Um, the, you mentioned that the victims were coming into the courtrooms. Is that and forgive me because I don't remember, but does that compete with the juvenile's interest to privacy and what occurs within the courtroom? Um, it's up to the, the court does have discretion. So I think it's under welfare and institutions code 656.2 or uh, that may not be entire. I think it's somewhere around there. Okay. Um, victims in juvenile victims in juvenile court proceedings are allowed to attend the proceedings and bring up to two support persons um, and that's at every single proceeding and the court does have discretion to exclude when it will when they make a finding that it will disrupt uh kind of the purpose of the proceedings okay um for the most part though the what has happened in the past two and a half years is that the courts will admonish uh, victims and the support persons, letting them know that they're confidential proceedings, um, that you know they can't speak about them. It's a crime, um, and and from what I've seen, victims have honored that. Okay. And that my other question was, I noticed there was a on your diversion um, slide, there was an increase in the cases being diverted from 2018 to 2021, and then there was kind of a dip. In 2021 to 2022, I see some heads nodding from my fellow commissioners. What happened there, or, or is it just a small number? It's the dip is yeah. It was like 19% and it went down to this year so far. Mm -hmm. It's been 17%. Um, I I don't know for sure what's happened there, but I will say that you know some of the cases that we're seeing, if they're serious um, and they warrant more court intervention, then we're not sending them to diversion. Okay. Um, and what, what my question is, uh, Commissioner Sprinkle, uh, what warrants a strike? Well, one thing I can talk about is it's, it's hard to lay out. Um, it really should be a case by case 
review and it's hard to kind of set like a blanket rule of, you know, these are the cases that should be strikes, they shouldn't, but because there, there should be some discretion that's exercised. And I'll give an example. Robbery is a very, it covers a broad spectrum of conduct. And there's a difference between a person who takes a gun and pistol at somebody and takes their watch um, or, you know, uh, a personal item of theirs, uh, as opposed to a youth who is at school, um, sees somebody using a phone, decides last minute, you know, to try to snatch the phone, becomes a tug of war, and then there's a push um, to run away with the phone. Those are two extremely different types of conduct, but they both fall under technically this term robbery um, and can be charged as strikes. So just because they can, the question is, should they be? Um, and I think what I was trying to say is that there should be some discretion that's exercised. Yeah, no, no, I, I asked you that because I seen in 2018, it was 120, yeah. 120. And then in 2021, it went down to 29. But my question to you is 120 out of how many did you see? And then the 29 out of how many did you see? Yeah, and that's a fair question. Because we were talking percentages the last time we were in here. And this is where the percentages should have came in at. Instead of just saying 120, I don't know, 120 out of... 400, 120 out of 200, I mean, what, you know, out of what? It's on the slide, I didn't uh, I didn't actually say it out loud, but it's on the slide too. So you're right, the volume is, is very different. We got about half of the cases or so um, in the past two and a half years. And if you look at the rates, I wanna go. Uh, I eyeballed it. Thank you. Okay. I think in 2018, it looked to be about 64% and in uh, 20, 22, it looked to be about 25%. Thank you. Okay, because, you know, for, yeah, and you're right. You know, when we talk about young people and strikes and how you look back 20 years later and you still fighting that same strike, yeah. uh, it, it's devastating, especially, you know, to, I'm just going to say, black folks incarcerated and who has a record. And it's, that's Can one of our challenges. And that's one of our challenges. And then for me too is how are you guys doing when it comes to the mental health piece? When we talk about, you know, because you know, you hit me when you said that, you know, how do you what do you call a check-in? Uh, a, a text message that is not communicating with our our, our kids, our young people. Um, so what is the follow-up? Yeah, after you done had this conversation with the mental health person, what is the follow-up after that? When yeah. you said, okay, you didn't know this, he needed intense case management. He needed intense uh, mental health. So what is, what is the follow-up? Because you know what I have noticed in this process and doing some of this work and mental health is big. So we, our communities are traumatized and they don't even understand it or see it or know it, right? So they're traumatized, don't know it. They run, we function every day. I think everybody at this desk has some trauma going on and we just get up and deal with it on a daily. We never address it, right? And trauma is big, and especially black and brown communities right now today. Um, so for me, it's like in the shortage of mental health support that you find that can work with kids of color is just devastating. Yeah. It's just at a one-year, two-year um, backup. And even in that process, I had a young man tell me the other day, he was reaching out for some help at UCSF. And they prescribed him medication without even seeing him over a telephone. 
So this is what I, you know, this is, it's just devastating on the system and what's happening. We don't have enough mental health yeah. care. But my question is, what, what is the follow-up and how do you do that? Yep. You know, in the process of saying, hey, I'm giving this young man some mental health, this young lady some mental health, but, well, and I don't have nobody there to do the, do the work. Yep. I'm just keep telling them this and time keep going on, but they, it's not fixing. It's not fixing. It's not anything. helping in, in, in any way. So this is this is exactly going back to what I said or the very first few slides that I talked about welfare and institutions code 202. It's we're not just here to charge and prosecute. We are to do that. We're here to do that too. But it says by law we have to hold ourselves accountable for the outcomes. That's the DA's office too. We're holding ourselves accountable for the outcomes of each case. And so what that means is we can't take it, you know, once we resolve the case, once there's an admission, we don't take a backseat and just sit back and watch, you know, the case plans play out and see and kind of take a very hands off approach. Um, what we do do is when there is a disposition, um, when a youth is placed on probation, we are looking at the assessment. We look at the what is the plan initially, like why? If you're saying this agency is involved and these are the check-ins, why? Why this agency? What assessment has been done? What mental health needs uh, suggest to us that this is the proper agency or this is the proper therapy that's, that's needed? So that's one is just making sure that there's some alignment between the plan and the needs. And then the second thing is once the plan is done, you know, and sometimes I've seen before just you know, we're having these progress reports, but we're never referring back to the plan. We're not seeing the kid as a whole kid and seeing that we have an actual goal here. We have six months of probation or one year of probation. Are we using it to carry out that plan and, and make sure that it's actually happening? And so that's the difference also is that at every single progress report, we're conferencing internally these cases. Like, let's, see, let's take a look at what we said the plan was, what JPD said the plan was, going to be back in May. We're in August now. What are the services? Why why aren't we discussing like, you know, A, B, and C that was listed in the plan? What happened to that? And so there's more of an eye on follow-up to make sure that we're as a system, we're doing what we said we would. We just haven't got there yet. No, we are we I guess no, it no, takes no, a while. Just... One thing I do want to say also what we've done is we've presented to uh, I presented to the juvenile probation department because there is uh, a lot of connection between victim services and juvenile court and a lot of these kids coming into our system. They they've been victims of abuse, sometimes ongoing victims of abuse. And when they are victims of violent crime, they qualify for victim compensation. And if they apply, um, they can qualify for, you know, compensation um, for mental health services for life. And I think that's something that uh, I, I think we need to get the word out on that because that's something that uh, is underutilized. No, so my question, I just want to ask this. So what are we doing to make sure that we get more support in that area other than just keeps, you know, we, we keep because, you know, it's, it's not it's not it's not trickling down. Yeah. to to our young people because you know like you said a year that went by like that and they still are in the same space they were in when they first got arrested so what are we doing to bring in mental health support from, so to follow up on that question yeah. is sort of when you discover that something isn't working what do you do that's then there's a discussion in court that's something that's brought up raised and addressed um and in the past it would 
oftentimes I saw it overlooked. Um, so that's already a huge change in practice is taking out that original case plan, dispo plan, and then matching it against all of the, the subsequent progress reports. But I hear Mr. Commissioner Spangola that this is, there's more that needs to be done. And I think part of it also is that, you know, the truth is that a lot of our nonprofit agencies or community-based organizations are underfunded too. It, it's a whole systems issue because we want these therapists and social workers to be on call sometimes, like on the weekends at nights when there are crises. Um, but at the same time, are we paying them enough, you know, to do that work? Because it's important work. Not to interrupt, mm -hmm. but it's beyond that. It's just not enough help. It's, mm -hmm. it's just not enough. So it's beyond that. Everybody I know that does case that there's so, no help. It's just it's just overwhelmed. So it's just not enough. I, I hear you. It's just not enough out there, no matter how much you can pay somebody. It's hard to get uh People that look like me to come into my community, coming out of college and trying, you know, they got to make a living, so they get it. But you know, at the end of the day, it's just not enough help that you know. For so we are now already way over the time we have allocated. Oh, you reminded me again. Can I have one? Sorry. I, I so I want to make sure that other commissioners have a chance to ask questions, and then I know we have some public testimony. So, thank you, Linda. Yeah, thank you, thank Dr. Stingola. That was good. Um, but. The questions I have is the quality of the services, because I hear that that's an issue. You have goals, you have a plan, but then when you go back to check on everything, it's not what the expectation was. So how is that built in from the top? How is how does that become the reality? Are, are there trainings with these community-based organizations so that they're all using the same language or, you know, same identifiers, descriptors? What is what is in place so that you know when they say they're checking in, they're not texting. They're literally sitting down eye to eye, having a conversation and checking, you know what I'm saying? So it's a lot to that. Um, and this is a big job. Mm -hmm. This is huge. And like uh, Commissioner Spangola said, we, there's not enough people. Um, actually, there's not enough funding in order to have enough people. No offense, Steve. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's one concern I had. And the measurements, you know, um, you brought us some data today, but what are some of the additional measurements that you really are trying to to make changes for? And, and oh, excuse me, what do they look like? And then the num the young people, I'm going to call them students, but the young people, girls to boys, what's the ratio? Mm -hmm. Because that's a you know that's a different they're the same population, but they're different genders. So sometimes the needs are different and you might have a one fits all, but it doesn't fit. Right? So how, what, what does it look like to actually take a look at that to see how, what else can be built in? Mm -hmm. Those are my questions. Yeah. So, and those are, thank you for the questions, commissioner Jordan. Um, these are, uh, these are tough questions and I'll say just 1 thing that I can think back to that we have done is, uh, when I say that we've looked at. The release plans case plans with more scrutiny that also means in some cases in court we have said we don't agree with this release plan we want to see this youth in the community but we want we also want to see them in the community and succeed and not put you know the public at risk and so how do we get there and um when we see a pattern like there's of kind of problems and release plans what we did was we brought in the nonprofit organization we had a meeting with them with the calendar de deputies um, and the provider and 
we said, you know, one one big problem that we saw was that the plans said, you know, these are the the organizations that we identified, and upon release, uh, they'll be linked to these agencies, and that doesn't work because they will be linked can mean they will be linked in the next three months or eight weeks or what, right? Because when youth are in custody in juvenile hall, it, it usually means that they need a lot of support. They were brought in for a reason, not released immediately for a reason. And so we're, we're going to be releasing them back into the community and guaranteeing public safety. That means we have to make sure that services are intensive. Um, and that means just take an extra step. You know, if you say you're going to link to X agency, make that phone call and say, do you have a case manager that's available that can start on this date um, and make it to this young person's home and meet with them? And, you know, that's already a small tweak that can make a big difference. Yeah, and I think the other piece that, that I'm, I'm also hearing in my head is the follow through. You might have the dedicated person, but that person's caseload might be overloaded. So how is the follow through? Um, how is that coordinated so that everything that these young people need, because they will be going back and we don't want them going back the same way they came in, right? So how are we meeting that need so that it's different for them? You know, you can change one, two things, it'll be different. You know, if you can change five, phenomenal. But the reality is when you have a case load and you don't have the personnel to cover it, something gets left out. So what are you guys building in or what are you thinking about building it? Mm -hmm. It's usually, and, and this is not to say, you know, that it's not our responsibility because we are responsible for outcomes, but normally we, we don't control the functions, internal functions of community-based organizations or the juvenile probation department or, you know, out, these outside agencies. We can make recommendations, like this is what we want to see that we think will improve outcomes, like immediate linkage or something like that. But the agencies themselves, we, we don't go in and dictate like how, but I, I will say this, and that's that we had had meetings with these agencies and have talked about, at, at least with um, the UCSF um, adolescent, I, I have to think of, I can't remember off the top of my head the, the name of the department. Um, I wanna say it's adolescent psychiatry. And we did talk about this issue that there's, um, Kind of no real structure for community based organizations in terms of like technical getting technical assistance. Um, there's no space to really talk about like care coordination and, you know, creating something like that, you know, um, could benefit. Yeah, no, I hear that you're, you're not you're not dictating what. They should do, but you should have some type of a benchmarks set up of what you'd like to be accomplished. And I guess that's what I meant. I'm sorry if I wasn't clear on that. Instead of dictate, what are the expectations? And how, how do these agencies know those expectations? And how are they building them out? I see. I can answer. So the, the, we can, it's exactly what I said before is like meeting with them. And then in court, you know, it would influence whether or not we would agree to release or not, um, or a certain disposition. And then the follow-up, or sometimes even when the court makes the orders, we can ask the court to make specific orders. We can say, when it says check-in three times a week, can the court also order that these check-ins be face-to-face -face for an X amount of time? Um, so we can the, we can kind of influence what the plan looks like on the ground with these specific orders. 
Okay, and I want to, if, if you don't mind. Um, I just didn't hear anything about the, the 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 families. How are the families brought in to support what you're trying to provide the young people so that when they are released back out, how does that piece work in? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, President. No, I, I'm just trying to keep the meeting going and I know we have an hour and a half of another agenda item. I know there are people in the audience that want to testify. Um, what I, I'm trying to figure out how to do this. I, I really am because I, I want to make sure that we're not just grilling somebody, you know, and that could go on all day because we don't know everything. I want to, I, I'm thinking about how do we make sure that when we have concerns, we make a motion. Are we put something on the agenda of the program committee? Or we think of some, you know, action that we want to take to address the things that we're concerned about. But, so I, I, did you want to say more? Can I, can I just yeah. ask one question? Uh, which we I have think another commissioner who wants inform the program committee. In your opinion, from the district attorney's office, do you have the full range of options that you need? Um, when you're trying to make a decision about whether to release a young person and if in those cases where you find that it's not enough support for a kid and then you err on the side of detention, kind of what would you look for to be able to release that young person? Yeah, we so we've been pretty proactive in that if we do have to make that decision um, that no, this is, you know, unfortunately we've, you know, we want to work with the youth and, and get them back into the community, but this is not enough. We would actually pick up the phone and tell we would have a discussion with the defense attorney and say this, you know, instead of just saying no, and then keep and then waiting for them to just take the next step. We would reach out and say exactly what we think we need to see in the release plan. Okay, thank you. And I would like to say congratulations when she sees a gap in services. She starts a new program to address unaccompanied minors or address young uh, women who've been victims of, of trauma. So I think it's been a breath of fresh air, an exciting DA. I, do we have public testimony? And I am deeply concerned because we have a change in philosophy in the DA's office, and I want to make sure she stays there because what you're hearing from this DA is not what you hear from every DA and not what you hear from every juvenile DA. And so is there public testimony? And I will point out you all got a copy of a letter that was written by the um, Juvenile Justice Providers Association urging the new DA and the mayor to keep um, Casey Lee in her position in the district attorney's office. I would hope that we would support that position. And that, um, you know, it, it, as individuals, at least take. President, I think that's another agenda you're pushing right now. Yes, it is another yeah. agenda item. Sorry. Okay, so let's hear the public testimony and maybe on the next agenda, we can put that issue. And just public comment. I just want to make sure. Yeah, I mean, public comment. Hello. <laughs> is there any public comment? Yes, please comment. Hi, hey, guys. This Good evening, commissioners. Thank you for this. And I am making this comment out of out of a sense of urgency. And I know that Commissioner Brodkin uh, alluded to some of this, but we all know that there has been a shift in the office of district attorney. And so I do want to make a comment of this. And uh, I have never seen who I thought would be a better district attorney 
at Juvenile Hall. Um, Ms. Lee, and I hope this is okay. I didn't ask permission. Anyway, Ms. Lee has, has impeccable character as a district attorney, upholding the office itself, making the decisions that are appropriate for a district attorney. Um, she has been as good or better than any I've ever seen. Uh, decisions that I have disagreed with are difficult to argue with. However, she as any, for example, any good doctor knows that to solve a problem, you don't just address the symptoms. You have to eradicate the origin. And to solve problem of youth crime, you cannot just address the symptoms of those crimes. You have to, you have to eradicate the cause. You have to understand where, what happened to this person that gets them to the spot where they think that this is how they need to live, how they need to survive. And as a district attorney, to understand that uh, is phenomenal. And I, I would like to ask the commission, as a commission and as individual commissioners, please use whatever power, whatever authority, whatever influence, whatever schmooze ability you have to keep Casey Lee in this office. We all know that, well, we all don't know anything that's going to happen right now. There's potentially a lot of upheaval, but the health of the youth of San Francisco, consequently, the health of San Francisco can't afford to lose her in that job. Please, actively do what you can do individually and as a commission to keep her in that position. We all need it. Can I, can I ask you to identify yourself if you feel comfortable? My apologies. So, okay. Just for the record. Well, yeah. that's, what, that's why my wife was laughing behind okay. me. Ron Stickle, uh, I'm the Director of Justice Services Thank at Penn State Youth Services. Hey, Ron, Thank can you. I ask, did we miss something or something? Was somebody pushed out of office? Or did something come down the pipeline? We don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm just asking, because you put you pushing that, um, uh, President Brockett pushing that. Did we did, did we miss something here as a, a body that said that they don't seem some Am I allowed to answer some of that? Yes, or sure no? are. We're no, you're, we're all just conjecturing and worrying. No, that's not, so, it hasn't happened yet, but it hasn't I mean, I'm, I'm sure you couldn't miss the recall. And the changes that have happened position something a bit different. In it, it's so no secret who appointed her. We want to head it off before it gets to that point. Okay, next public testimony. Hey, good evening, commissioners. Uh, my name is Denise Coleman, retired. <laughs> yeah, that's a joke. That's the first time. <laughs> first time I had the opportunity to say that. <laughs> um, I, I just really wanted to comment also on uh, Casey Lee. One of the big changes that she made when she came into the district attorney's office is the district attorney would defer young people to us. And there used to be a six month cap on working with that young person. And Casey said, no, we understand that there is a lot of relationship building that has to be done with these young people. And having that six month cap is, is just not the way to do that business. And that was extended and it put us in a better position to build those relationships and really provide the services um, that our young people need. And, and she's been very instrumental in helping us with the after program. In fact, the DA's office is holding the fun 
um, that compensates the person harmed uh, when the, the person responsible cannot afford to pay that restitution. Um, she's been very instrumental in helping us get that program up off the ground. And again, is holding those funds and making the uh, person harmed whole. And so um, I too speak uh, wholeheartedly for, um, for Casey Lee. I've worked with a lot of managing district attorneys, Jean Rowland being her predecessor. And, and, and most times the DAs that work for whatever reason in the uh, probation department and with young people are just extremely, especially her and Jean Rowland have been very compassionate, very focused on the needs of the young person and not just looking at, oh, you've been charged with a robbery. Bam, let me throw the book at you. No, it goes deeper than that. And they look into the young person's history and, and, and why it's important to divert that young person. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to close this part of the agenda and urge my fellow commissioners to take to heart the recommendations of. Uh, do, do we need Mr. to see if there's anyone online? Oh. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I thank you, dear. So I'm just going to read it. It's from Vanessa Ross Aquino, and she is with HRC. She's commissioner, and she says that counselors in high school and community colleges should be adding this information to all students for options and the services for them are there. It is, it's basically being redundant and make it a daily or semester briefing. So this came in at 622 and- um, Okay, and you'll be included in the minutes, so we okay. I will. understand it. So I, I would encourage people to respond to what um, uh, Ron Stuckel asked. I know I personally will, and then I'll put on the agenda for the next meeting any action that the commission wants to take regarding uh, Casey Lee. Although it may be too late by now, but we'll it, it is what we're required to do um, is to put it on the agenda before we take a position. So I'm going to move us on to the next item because it's a very meaty item, and it is the the largest portion of our agenda. And I'm going to first call on our chief because we're going to talk about the juvenile hall. Do we do we need to approve the minutes? She's paying attention. Yes, she's on Israel it. Israel paying attention. Thank you very much. Um, I failed to ask us to approve the minutes, so I'm going to ask if we can. And I would like to say, since our secretary is writing more robust minutes now, there's a, there were a couple typos in there which are easily fixed. But, you know, she's trying to represent what everybody on the commission is saying. So if people look at the minutes and make sure it reflects what they actually said and what they meant, I think that the approval of the minutes will have maximum meaning. So shall I would ask for a motion to approve the minutes. So moved. It's Se been moved. Second. Seconded. Will you take the roll? President Brodkin. Wait, wait. The comment. Did you take public comment? <laughs> public Sorry. comment. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, any public comment on the minutes? Seeing none, we will move to take the roll. President Brodkin. Yes. Vice President Cervantes. Yes. Commissioner Jordan. Yes. Commissioner Laco. Yes. Commissioner Moses. Yes. And Commissioner Spangola. Yes. Motion passes. Okay. Now I'm going to move us on to item 
five, which is the major item of discussion on this um, with possible action on the agenda. And this is what we've been waiting to talk about for a long time. What's going on with the juvenile hall? What when we heard about an incident earlier, which we're going to get a report back on and to get an update, which you put Commissioner Spangola put this on the agenda, wants to hear what's going on. And um, so I'm going to turn to the chief to first give us sort of background um, and then people can ask questions. Stephen, do you have my PowerPoint? Is that not it? That is it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, uh, so this, as, as President Rodkin noted, is allotted for 70 minutes on your agenda tonight. Um, but more to the, but more to the point, it, so this is for allotted for 70 minutes um, on your agenda this evening. Uh, obviously, we're always trying to assess how long things will take. We never know for sure. Um, but I, before you truly feel your heart sink, I want to acknowledge that there's actually several different pieces of the presentation and discussion. And so um, I just want to put the question to you, President Brodkin, do you want me to take one topic at a time and then have discussion and or do you want me to go through it all and then open it up? Um, I don't want to lose people's attention along the way, but uh, it, there's a lot of meat Does to the topic. Does anybody have a choice? Any opinion? I do. What else? One topic at a time. One topic at a time. Yeah, I mean, and you don't have to go, you don't have to go into every detail of what it is. I mean, you can cut 70 minutes to 60 minutes. No. Yeah. I do not. At 70 minutes is not me presenting we'll commissioner at all. Here. My presentation is not 70 minutes. That is the time, including. We'll take as long know. as it takes. This yeah. is, these are important issues. We meet monthly. We take our job seriously and however long it takes to address a serious issue. That's how long we're going to take. So I'm going to get started. I'm going to ask Stephen to please advance to the 1st slide. So then the 1st thing, so I will go through the 1st um, chunk of slides and then we'll pause for discussion. So the 1st thing on the agenda is legal authority. And so I'm going to go into the legal authority and regulations that govern secure detention. Um, and this was actually something commissioner Spengola that you had asked about, right? Like, what would the state say is kind of the law and background that we need to know? Um, I just want to acknowledge that these, there is a lot of information on these slides. I'm not going to read these slides to you. I'm going to just cover what the main points are, but I wanted you to have them after this as a resource. So there's more information in this than you will necessarily hear. There's also an appendix to this PowerPoint of information that I didn't even want to touch on as I speak, but that you may want later. So you'll see all of that. Um, I also do want to acknowledge that this language is really stark and impersonal when you look at state statute. Um, the words I'm using are really coming from statute and they can be really traumatic and especially for people who've experienced the system. And every time we look at these words, I just want to acknowledge that they don't feel like there are people behind them um, and we know there are. So a few slides that are kind of a 101 on secure detention and the big question, which is why does San Francisco need a secure detention setting in the first place? Um, so there's three reasons that I have put on the slide. The first is that some charges require a young person to be held in custody until they come before a judge. Those tend to be the cases that Casey was just talking about, serious and violent crimes, charges that are fall under section 707B, um, 
uh, committed by young people age 14 and up. So for certain offenses, when a young person's arrested, until they go before a judge, they need to be held in some kind of custody. The second reason is that the court itself has acknowledged the need for this. So during the closed juvenile hall work group process, the court submitted a letter with kind of its position. And as part of it, it said that, that San Francisco needs a secure detention facility that meets state laws and regulations. And this is really important because the court actually has to approve whatever site San Francisco designates as its detention center. And then the third thing is that if we don't have an approved secure detention center in San Francisco, the court can actually order young people that come before them detained in other counties, in any other county in the state. So good. these are all kind of the, the basics for why we need to um, consider what we're gonna do in San Francisco. Next slide, please, Stephen. So the question came up a lot in the closed juvenile hall work group around what a secure setting means and whether something could be what people were calling staff secure, right? With the idea being that it would be, a, that can it be considered a secure setting if it's a person, an employee, a staff member, either physically putting themselves between a kid and the door or verbally trying to keep a young person from leaving, does that qualify? So we asked that question of the state. Um, the state actually looks to federal definitions for what secure means. And this is the information they provided us, and I've shared it with you on the slide, that under the federal definition that California adopts, um, that they define secure as having construction features designed to physically restrict movement. So not a person in the door, but a locked door itself, a door or a wall, those kinds of things. And that's uh, staff secure doesn't really have meaning in the context of um, uh, de detention facilities and the regulations in the state. Next slide, please. And then in terms of what we have to abide by statewide, um, Titles 15 and 24 of California regulations set the minimum standards that juvenile facilities in all counties have to do, have to follow. This would also apply to Log Cabin Ranch, for example, not just to Juvenile Hall. There are regulations for camps and ranches too. There's two areas of uh, regulations that are pertinent to us. Title 15, which is about how we run it, and Title 24, which is about the building. If you look in your appendix um, to your presentation, you'll see that I listed out all of the topics covered in those titles, but I'm not going to go through them with you here. I gave some examples on this slide. So Title 15 is staffing, education, visitation, like how do you do the thing for the kids? Title 24 is what do the spaces look like? What do they need to have? What does lighting look like? All those kinds of things. The Board of State and Community Corrections is the state body that actually develops the guidelines and also um, does annual inspections of our hall and approves the operating of the hall. Um, they used to be conducted every other year. They're now conducted every year in California, those inspections. Um, in addition to the inspection from the Board of State and Community Corrections, we are subject to a range of other inspections, including from the county buildings, fire, medical, nutrition, environmental, school, juvenile court has to do a visit every year, as does the Juvenile Justice Commission. Um, so all of them have inspections that they have to do and then file with the state. And then um, moving on to the next slide. So you all heard me talk about DJJ realignment a few times and I won't go into detail, but when we look at the laws and regulations that underpin what we have to have and how we have to operate a secure facility in San Francisco, these are really relevant now too. So as you know, um, the state, the governor signed legislation closing down DJJ at the state level realigning that responsibility 
um, for long-term confinement of the most serious young people to the counties. Um, the main point about that legislation for our conversation here is that counties now have that responsibility um, and that each county is required to create a DJJ realignment subcommittee to develop like your plan in your county. And you've all heard me talk about that. Next slide. And so San Francisco's full plan is available on our website. Um, but the part of our plan that's pertinent for us tonight is that um, our subcommittee is required to determine what we were going to be using um, to be what's called a secure youth treatment facility or SYTF for young people who the court commits to that kind of long-term secure confinement. So young people who they would have previously sent to DJJ. Each county needs to figure out how are they going to do that? Are they going to do it within their county? Are they going to contract with a program in another county? Are counties going to come together and create regional programs? These are all things that the statute allows. I included the pertinent language from the statute for you to see, um, but, uh, but we have to come up with a solution. And so counties all over the state are trying to figure this out and implement the law. Given where we are in the closed juvenile hall discussions in San Francisco, I put at the bottom of this slide what our subcommittee locally voted on to be our plan. So this is our plan for now in San Francisco that we will use our current juvenile hall as our interim secure youth treatment facility for any young people who receive that commitment. We already have young people in that situation. I'll touch on that later. And that we'll go back and look at the plan again once the city makes some decisions around our future place of detention. The subcommittee also voted to recommend to city leadership that we co-locate young people with these kinds of long-term confinements with the kids coming through our regular juvenile hall program because the numbers generally are so low that we don't want to isolate young people into a very tiny program for a long time. Um, and then you can see the rest of the recommendations. But in essence, this new law is another layer for us on kind of the legal mandates that we have as a county to figure out what a secure place will look like for our kids. So that is the first part of my presentation for tonight. That's kind of the legal underpinnings. Uh, and I will pause and see if there's any questions. So if we're going to allow for questions, I presume we also allow for public testimony. Public comment. Comment. That's sorry. I mean, you don't have to, that's not required. I understand no. that. It just makes sense to me. Okay. Just making sure you're aware of that. Um, so noting that we are, there are other many other aspects of the juvenile hall that we want to hear about. Are there questions or, uh, about this and are there any comments from the uh, public uh, about what's just been said? Okay. Well, kind of. Nobody in the public. Uh, I just want to say that uh, it, you make it sound like there is no no flexibility. It has to be exactly like this. And I want to say that there's such things as waivers. There's such. I'm gonna like, stay tuned for more. Stay, stay tuned. tuned. Okay. I will because <laughs> yeah, because um, we're talking home like we're talking about uh, uh, kind of diversion and deinstitutionalization. Okay, moving on. Okay. So, excuse me. When you were talking about the um, 
the secure youth can you treatment. talk into the microphone sorry about that when you were speaking about the secure youth treatment facility for san francisco mm -hmm. and that there's also possibly a plan to do it regionally mm -hmm. okay I'm, I'm i don't want to go there yet i'm gonna let you finish <laughs> sure so all i'll say about that commissioner is that the law enables you to either do it in your own county send young people through contract to another county or for counties to come together none of that has happened yet so there's no um other than in really rural parts of the state um there hasn't been any kind of regionalization of counties coming together to develop uh, a regional program like that it may be something that you see on the horizon over time but right now the vast majority of counties um, are using their own existing facilities for this yeah. i don't know i just see that regional being problematic seriously problematic right and the intent of the law is to keep young people closer to home yeah and so i'm yeah. uh, not trying to read into your mind but i want to acknowledge that um, that's that's been raised right if the idea of closing djj is to bring young people back to where their families are then if you move to regional models are you recreating something i, I do want to point out that the commission has uh, a, a place on the realignment committee do we not no no sorry about no, that they, they asked for you yesterday madam president <laughs> They did. They asked if she was there for you yesterday. But no, the commission's not one of the seats on the realignment subcommittee. Okay. Moving on. Sure. So the next thing we're going to talk about is an overview on operations and programming. Um, and then I'll move into status of the new of the closed juvenile hall discussions. Uh, so next slide, please, Stephen. So in terms of our scope and operations, so obviously juvenile justice center, juvenile hall continues to operate. Uh, it uh, still goes today. We every once in a while have young people say to us, I thought we were closing, but it's still operating. Um, the facility, as you know, because you all see our monthly data, serves three main populations. Young people who are have been arrested and they're there while their case is going through adjudication or their case has been adjudicated and they're waiting for a placement to go to. Young people who've been ordered to stay in detention by the court. Um, and young people who have been committed by the court to that long-term SYTF that I was just describing. And you can see the breakdown um, from actually tonight's data of where things fall. So the vast majority of young people there are there pre-adjudication while their cases are happening with some smaller numbers of young people who've either been committed under the new law or who the judge has just committed to be in the hall because that has always been a part of the law. So they can just commit a young person for a term of stay. I do want to really acknowledge that, um, and I know it's been a particular concern for President Brodkin, that what you've seen a real sharp decline in is the number of young people who are there because they're waiting for placement. So we've really had that number go down. There actually aren't any when you look at today's pie chart for a lot of reasons, creation of the RFA, foster homes that have been stood up, working with some placements that we have. But the other side of it is that um, it, it's also because the court does use this as a placement, right, as a commitment now for some young people. Next slide. In terms of the staffing, so staffing needs for the hall are determined based on the program design and the operation, not necessarily the number of young people. The state does establish a minimum ratio, 1 to 10 during awake hours, 1 to 30 at night. But there's many other factors we use to determine our staffing. The biggest one being the number of units we have to operate at any given time. So we may have 12 young people in the facility, 
but right now, because of COVID, because of having young adults and kids, we actually have four units operating as, as I'm speaking to you for those 12 kids. And how so, many staff is that? Um, and we have, I think it's 42 counselors, and I would have to give you the breakdown on the other um, senior positions. Um, and those things, some of them are on the units, some of them are doing things like central control. We always have to be ready. You've all heard me talk about this before. If we have a young person at the hospital, for example, we have two staff there 24 hours. So we have to make sure that we can meet those needs as they go up and down. Um, we also, even though we have small numbers, have had situations where we may have uh, young women, for example, who are comfortable being on a co-ed unit or young women who do not want to be on a co-ed unit and we would put them on their own unit. And there's so few girls in the hall right now that when that happens, sometimes it will be a unit for one. So we're really kind of uh, trying to grapple with that. Staff are trained to meet the requirements addressed in Title 15. We're doing a lot of other training that's coming online for them. I'll touch on it later. And I, under the law, I'm considered the facility administrator of our juvenile hall. Um, and in addition to the, st the stuff that the law mandates about staff, there's local labor, labor agreements, there's city Department of Human Resources processes. Um, the staff in the hall fall under two different unions. And so we're also um, working with those two separate unions on any labor issues. I do want to note, and you've all heard me say this before, that we've reduced staffing in the hall by 21% over the last few years. Next slide. So this is the typical weekday schedule for the juvenile hall kids. Um, I want to note, and I'll go through it, I started obviously waking up in breakfast, they clean their rooms, they spend four hours in school. One of those hours is for what's called large muscle activity, exercise. Those are regulated, so they have to spend at least three hours in school and at least one hour doing large muscle activity. And then you'll see there's programming time both before and after dinner. Um, most programming that comes in from the community comes from that 3.30 to 5 window, but there are some programs like the Beat Within, for example, that comes in at night. And then there are some programs that come in on the weekends, um, but we are always looking for more uh, weekend programming in particular. Um, and then I want to note that for the young people who've completed high school or are over 18, so our secure youth in particular, they obviously don't have to go to school for four hours. Most of them are taking classes online. Um, but that is, it's optional for them. It is not a requirement currently under the law. The last thing I want to note um, is that you'll see that um, sometimes they have programming or open recreation, or that's when they're calling their families. The law under Title 15, engaging in programming other than school is optional, not mandatory, and we're required to give them an alternative if they don't want to do the program. Next slide. In terms of public partnerships in the hall, there's a handful. So for education, we have San Francisco Unified and now uh, City College, which I'm super excited about. So there's an education center in the hall with classrooms. They'll take very traditional classrooms. Um, young people who are either pursuing high school or middle school, mostly high school, obviously, go to those classrooms and they receive instruction from San some great, great San Francisco Unified teachers. Um, Students who have graduated from high school are taking online community college classes, mostly through City College, but actually also through other community colleges in the Bay Area. Uh, we have one young person who just finished the semester where he was taking seven college classes online, um, four through City College and three, I think, through Peralta. So they kind of can go online and, and do that what makes sense. Um, we also have online, online vocational courses now available for all of our young people. Um, through what's called ICEV, 
And if they want to participate in that, the school district helps get them enrolled. Um, SPI is the part of the Department of Public Health that does all the on-site medical and behavioral health services, both one-on-one -on -one and sometimes group things like for behavioral health. They have a full medical clinic, but they'll also serve kids on the units. And then the public library has a library on site um, that it operates for our kids, but it also will meet all of their requests. So if they want books that are not in the library, the librarian will go into the larger library system and bring them to them. Next slide, please. And then we have an array of community organizations also working with us. I have put that brochure on as a teaser because you can go onto our website and look at the brochure, which lists everything. You can see different programs. Art of Yoga, The Beat Within, Omega, Sunset Youth Services, Young Women's Freedom Center. Um, like I said, one of the challenges for us is that uh, programming is optional, not mandatory. And so um, I was actually just in a recent conversation with um, Ron Stuckel about what could we do to encourage young people to participate when they don't feel like it, if they don't want to. Um, but uh, we have this wide array of programming and folks coming in and doing some really interesting things. Most of it is funded by the city some by other sources, and then some are volunteers. And I will just note that this only lists organizations that come to do on-site programming. So it's not the full universe of CBOs that may be engaging with a young person while they're in custody. If they already have a relationship with somebody out in the community, that person may be maintaining contact with them. They may be doing kind of a virtual, staying in touch with them. Um, and obviously, organizations like CJCJ that are coming in to do release planning are, are coming in as well. This is just the on-site programs that are scheduled. Uh, next slide. And then family contact. So, you know, one thing that uh, the pandemic has very few silver linings. And, but one thing that you've heard me talk about over time is that when we could not have in-person visitation, and we had to get video visitation up and running for our young people, we actually saw a dramatic increase in the frequency with which young people were having contact with their families, right? So parents that maybe couldn't make it all the way across town for a visit that had other obligations in their lives or had to travel a long distance for, you know, that in a time that they couldn't, uh, when we switched over to using Teams, they could actually jump on very regularly and video conference with their children. So we saw a real uptick in how often that face-to-face -face contact, albeit on a screen, was happening. So when we were able to reopen, we decided that we needed to have both and. So we offer both now. So we continue to offer the video visits, but we also have gone back to in-person visits on the weekends, um, other than times when we have to close down due to COVID exposure. We also expanded our telephone hours during COVID, and we were able to keep that going as well. Um, we do have family events happening that we plan for, graduations and other special events. Uh, the assigned probation officer for each young person approves the visitor list for that young person. It will note that for the young adults, those visitor lists tend to be more flexible. Um, and uh, I also will note that the counselors of the, from the hall kind of, that they take efforts during those visits to update families on things that they want to let them know that their young person's accomplishing. Um, things that they just want to call out and kind of maintain that contact. Um, I can move into the closed juvenile hall piece or I can pause for questions. Are you going to talk about the co-leadership model? Yeah, that's I'm following the order on here. Okay, because that is sort of the guts, the, the major recommendation. So, yeah, questions. 
I have a couple of questions. You said an alternative is required if they don't want to do programming. Can you tell us what that means? Does that mean they sure. have to like, go ahead. Sorry. Sure. So it can be as simple as they can take a book and go into their room if they want, or they can be reading in the day room or they can take out a game and play a board game with somebody. Um, we try to make sure that we're not offering alternatives that are super enticing, like you know, if you don't go to the program, you can watch a movie is not a great alternative, right? So how do we allow them space to not participate in what is the primary structured activity um, to do something other than just be sitting and not doing anything, but, um, but not have itself be an alternative that, you know, is going to be a draw. Okay. And then my other question was the teams meeting for families that maybe don't have access to devices. Mm -hmm. Is there support? given to those families? So we, what we have found because they can do it from their phones is that we really haven't seen it to be a limitation. Okay. What we have had to do is provide support to families to learn how to put the technology, put the app on their phone and access it. Um, we, and I should note that on all of those meetings, they originate from us out to the family. So they receive an invitation. Um, we have an ability to make sure that that, which that, that remains confidential that way, right? We can control the confidentiality of it. Um, but we found that with some technical assistance, families are able to get on on their devices if they don't have a computer. So many families during the pandemic received computers from schools. Mm -hmm. So it meant that most of our families did have that ability. Mm -hmm. quick, quick question. Mm -hmm. oh, sorry. Did you, did, okay. Um, you mentioned CTE. Mm -hmm. Career technical education. Yeah. So is that done via online or do they literally might have three or four young people with an instructor and an assistant where they actually get to touchy feeling? Not yet. So we're working toward doing that. At the moment, it's online. So it's something called ICEV. Um, we purchased uh, 30 licenses that enable our young people to do three different general sets of fields. We, we met with the young people to ask what they were most interested in. So there's three different kinds of sets of licenses we have. One is called family and consumer sciences. It includes things like culinary arts, which two of our kids just signed up for this week. Um, another area is architecture, construction, transportation, and manufacturing. And then the third is business, marketing, finance, IT, and media. So within those big areas, they can go in um, and look at any of those things. Some of them are actually certifications online. And others are just uh, career exploration and kind of curricula that they can follow. So for now, we're relying on doing it online that way um, while we try to work toward determining what on-site like. we can have. Yeah. What do you anticipate on-site probably uh, this time next year? Yes, we were hoping to be further along with it right now. Um, one of the challenges for us is that we have, it's a small number of young people. So figuring out what you can do that meets individual interests, but still enables us to bring people in to do instruction. Um, I'll offer as an example that, you know, in Los Angeles, where they have 50 young people in their security treatment facility right now, and 80 more on the way, their UCLA is probably gonna be coming in and doing in, on-site college instruction. Um, so for us, the question becomes, when, when the good thing is that we have very small numbers of young people in the situation, then the hard thing is what can we do on site versus having to rely on online to give them the variety that they want. Right. Now, I was just thinking also about the um, San Francisco state program mm -hmm. where the was 12 of them have worked towards a certificate. Yes. In ethnic studies. Yes. 
that just catapults them into a whole nother sphere. You know, once they are releasing everything. So that, and that's phenomenal. So and I'd like to see more of that. Yeah. And one thing that's really exciting for me is that we've started working with city college with their counselor, Carlos Webster, who's amazing. Yeah. He's actually going to be coming on site once a month now meeting with all the young people to navigate the city college process, helping them pick out classes to meet their goals. Not only will he sit down with the young people who are actually in college, but he also during those visits will do office hours for any of the high school students who may be getting ready to go to city college or maybe even don't know if they want to, but want to the benefit of sitting down and speaking with a live face to face person. So the counseling will be the first thing that comes on site for us, but the courses will still be virtual. Um, I'm just wondering about uh, how you're using your current space and if you're using all of it with an eye towards what else might meet the needs. It's a lot of programming. It's a lot of different units. So are you using all of the space that you guys have now or is there no. space that's not being So we have some units that are closed. They'll come online if we need them to during pandemic. So if we so if if one unit, if, if COVID happens on one unit, we may have to move everybody off that unit to deep clean. We may go into a closed unit. While we do that and then bring them back. Um, so we have 4 units operating today. We have another unit that serves as our merit center. So that is a, it's filled with games and activities and it's kind of a hangout place that all of the units can access. Um, another 1 of our closed units has now become the fitness center for our secure youth treatment facility. Young people actually tomorrow is the 1st day that they'll get to go there. So they picked out all of the. Um, Exercise equipment and helped actually set up the unit. It actually looks amazing. So for now that unit is being used just for them as a dedicated fitness center. Um, so we're trying to do things that way, but then some units will just be offline. Commissioner Rose. Yes, I think I heard you saying in terms of staffing issue, say so reduce staffing by 20 something percent. Why is that? Is that because what? So COVID or because of what? No, I mean, so those are positions that we have removed from our budget over the last few years. Okay. There's a few ways that have happened. One uh, is that uh, the first year that I was here and we were talking about budget, there were positions that weren't even filled that were in our budget and we knew we could give them up. And then I made a commitment that we would continue to downsize as people left. So we weren't going to eliminate anybody's jobs, but as people left, we would continue to downsize until we reached a point where we thought we were at the right staffing level. Um, I do think that we are at that point right now for the way we operate this facility. And I think you all saw that, um, you know, we, we held things steady in this year's budget. We didn't eliminate hall staff for the first time in three years, um, in part because we've reached a point where we saw our overtime going up really high for hall staff. And we knew that we needed to stay steady. Um, because we were using overtime because we didn't have enough people. So at this point, we're all the positions in the budget are being are full are being filled. And this is the number of folks we need to be at to operate the way we are. Thank you. Okay, there's this section has been on the current programming in the juvenile hall. Uh, does anybody in the audience want uh, do, do we have any public comment? And before we do, I have a comment, which is this is a sort of antiseptic version of this. It's a jail. You know, kids sleep on cement slabs. They're in cells. There's a huge amount of downtime. It looks like, oh, I, I, you know, I want everybody to go visit to make sure I want to go visit again. I spent the night there. And, you know, the weekend was a, a total drag. Um, the food was 
uh, the, um, you know, if you didn't want to participate in one of the activities, too bad. Um, this is not a pretty picture. And so I just want to reiterate the point. We're trying to keep kids from having to go there. And when you just see like, oh, we have this and we have that and we have this, it makes it sound like, oh my God, it's wonderful. And I want to congratulate our chief for trying really hard to make a jail seem like a, you know, as good as it can be. But I don't think we ought to forget about the fact that even if you just look at this, there's all this dead time. You don't want to go to bed when you, you know, when they tell you to. If you're a you know, somebody comes around and looks in your cell every 15 minutes to make sure you're not killing yourself. I mean, it's 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 a jail. And there's some of the programming is good. I was there when the programming wasn't so good and nobody wanted to do it, you know? And so what else were they gonna do? The outdoor space is a joke. Every unit has a cement outdoor space that is like nothing there. <laughs> so I just don't want us to get lulled into, we have a wonderful chief and there are, you know, we have good partners and this is a problem. Okay, does anybody in the audience want to comment on it? Yes, there's uh, one caller want to make a public comment. Okay, chat. chat. Caller, you can talk now. Just remind. Hello, commissioners. My name is Ginky Enti. I'm with the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice and the co-chair of the Juvenile Justice Providers Association. Could like you talk louder? Ding. Yes, definitely, President Brutton. Um, I'd like to thank the Chief for her detailed description of programming currently happening at the Hall. Um, I noticed um, the Chief mentioned four hours are allotted for school, but I think the schedule on the PowerPoint listed six hours of school time, and I was wondering if someone might be able to provide clarity on how many hours of school per day the youth partook in. Um, additionally, it's mentioned there are four units currently open. Um, can you please, if you know, if the commission proves it, um, would appreciate hearing um, kind of a descriptor on what the various units are utilized for. I imagine one is for isolation, but was just wondering if there was an opportunity to hear a descriptor for all four of the units. Appreciate any insight. Thank you very much. Uh, any other comments? So there were some comments in the chat, but it just seemed like they were adding on or saying thank you, Chief, and, and, and items like that. If you want to just ask everybody to raise their hand, mm -hmm. and then Stephen can put them through, and then they have three minutes. I think there might be some confusion there. Okay, so does anybody want to talk instead of chat? Raise your hand, and we'll let you talk. We want to hear you talk. Okay, any uh Feel free to keep sort of struggling to do that. Meanwhile, if there is any public comment by people here, that would be great. If not, we will move on to the next section, which I want to point out is really important. The, there were two recommendations that came out of the closed juvenile hall report. One is we needed a home-like place that was not the current place. And two was that whatever we have, it needs to be co-led between the community and the juvenile probation department. And the question on the table is, what does that really mean? And how are we going to do that? Sure. And I'm just going to take us back a tiny bit to make the comment that 
Uh, I appreciate what you're saying, President Brodkin. We know that it's not an ideal space. Part of the reason we're still in this space as it currently is, is because of how slow this process takes. But I do want to let you know that among other things, all of the young people in the facility have new mattresses and new bedding that they picked themselves um, in one of our attempts to address some of the things like that. There will, they, that building has concrete slabs. Those are the foundations of the beds. That's not going to change. But I would say that I'm going to use the mat mattresses as a metaphor for what can we do in the space we have while we have it to make it be a habitable and warm space for our kids. I think we have a lot, long way to I'll go up there again. You know, how lively is the space? What are people doing in their dead time? You know, are, are, are they engaged? I mean, there is a lot that, you know, can be done and new mattresses is great. Thank you. They're very happy about their mattresses. I will take us to the next 1, which is talking about the closed juvenile hall overview, just where we are on it, which is not that much farther than we were before. So next slide, please, Stephen. <laughs> so I wanted to actually just put down the core part of the legislation that applies to what we're doing. Um, I know, uh, Commissioner Cervantes, you had asked as kind of the newest person at the table, like, where, what is this? What's happening with this? Right? So here's my 101 on that. So this is the excerpt from the ledge that I think is the most relevant to us tonight. Um, that uh, the ordinance says that we will have a re rehabilitative non-institutional place or places of detention in a location approved by the presiding judge of the court. So that's a piece that has to happen. Um, that we want it to be safe and supportive and homelike, but that it also shall conform to all applicable state and federal regulations, <laughs> which I just walked you through some of. So you can see the, um, the balance and the challenge that faces us when we have to do all of those things together that feel uh, very desperate. So good thing we are all up for the challenge. Next slide. So in terms of where we are in the process, folks know it was a two-year public process. I'll defer to President Brodkin for her editorial comments on the process, um, but I'll note that it was a 15-member uh, work group with six subcommittees and that the final report was submitted to the Board of Supervisors in November 2021. The report itself has 39 proposals. They were not kind of voted on as like a set of consensus recommendations, but they were proposals on a very broad range of topics. Um, 32 of those 39 proposals are about alternatives to detention. And I think that reflects, you know, a deep, deep goal of the people at that table for the question of how can we minimize the use of detention as much as possible? A truly important goal. And also, we need to know then what is the next place of detention. So there were seven um, proposals around place of detention. There was not a clear consensus on the a proposed location or number of beds. So some of the suggestions for sites were 1055 Pine Street, which is kind of a multi-story large building, formerly a dormitory for Academy of Art. Um, Edgewood, uh, which we've talked about before, single family homes, having two or three single family homes, um, or kind of an industrial warehouse space that would have a lot of uh, space for kind of creativity and design inside. Um, so those were some of the ideas that, that were surfaced during the process. Uh, since the report was submitted, the board has held a couple hearings, February 11th and May 19th. Um, and President Walton at the May 19th hearing asked JPD to start working on what President Brodkin has brought up, which is ideas for shared leadership. Um, there's been no date set yet on any follow-up meetings. I do want to acknowledge, and we've talked about it a little bit here, that we did take at JPD a step with our budget this year 
on trying to make sure that we have the um, resources as a city to bring a design consultant or an architect into this discussion to start meeting with um, cities folks, with community folks, with young people, with families around what would we want a space to look like. Um, that didn't go through you because it goes through the capital planning budget, but I've mentioned it here. It is a part of our budget going into next year. So the city would be bringing on a designer to do that work. It is not attached to any one address, that budget request, but we really wanted to make sure, because as you know, budgets happen once a year, that once we had some momentum going forward, we weren't all stuck for the lack of being able to take a next step. Next slide. So I just put up here for you so you can see a couple more slides that go back to kind of state ledge our state regulations, and it's really like, what do you do? How do you bring a new program online? What are the steps required? So the traditional process is what I've listed here. I'm not going to go through. You can see the different stages with which we would be engaging with the Board of State and Community Corrections. The whole process starts with a letter of intent. That's the easy part. That's a letter from the chief probation officer in the county saying, we're prepared to start this process. You know, come work with us, BSCC. The hitch of it, of course, is you need an address. And so until you have a site that you've identified to start the process, these other steps don't follow. But I want to give you a sense of kind of what we would be going through with the BSCC together once that we're ready to make that step. And then the next slide gets to what you were talking about, President Brodkin, the kind of question of like waivers. So um, next slide, Stephen. So there are two different ways that you can try new things with the state. One is pilot projects. So it's an initial short-term method to test an innovation and you get permission from the BSCC and you try it out. The second way is what's called an alternate means of compliance, and that's kind of a long-term method. So you can start with a pilot, say we want to try something different, different than what's in the regs. What you're asking for has to be equal to or exceed the regulations, um, but you make your case for why you want to try a different way to work with young people, either uh, programmatically or the building itself. And then they can give you permission to try that, uh, that pilot project and then that alternative means of compliance. Um, typically, these are for very specific things. So it's not that they give you a pilot project to create an entire new building um, or program that uh, departs from all of these different regs. You have to actually go through this process for any regulation for which you want to make a change. So it's important to know that they tend to be fairly um, specific. Uh, in scope, and so you have to go through that process for anything that you want to try to do differently. Next slide. So I did put in here so that we can keep in mind when we're thinking about what we want. <laughs> um, some space considerations that come right out of the code, uh, because these are these are real, right? These are things you have to account for when you're thinking about the size of a space. How much space do you need for every desk for a young person? all kinds of things. I give you a sense of some of them that I pulled out, but the two that I wanna bring up, because I think um, they're important for different reasons. One is making sure you have recreation space. So you have to have a minimum of 9,000 square feet around the space, um, some of which has to be paved. Um, and, uh, and then the second, the last thing on the list, because I think it's the most illustrative very often, which is that hallways have to be eight, eight feet wide. Um, and I bring it up because we talked a lot in our process in the city about single family homes in San Francisco. Um, and I have never been in a single family home in San Francisco with an eight foot wide corridor. And that's something that the board is actually really not willing to waive, for example. And so it does help us think about what, you know, using our imagination and the goals we want to move toward for our young people, what do the spaces need to look like? 
that we do need to be mindful of as we think about something new. And then the last thing I wanted to just touch on is capacity. So as I noted, the report didn't have um, a consensus on the number of beds. There were some very different projections, but I am gonna share with you the projection that we did at probation, you are our commission. Um, so we did a three-year analysis, Maria and Selena worked on, um, did a great job looking at both our average daily populations and our peak populations. So when we were at our highest over time to figure out and separating both boys and girls, young men, young women, to figure out what we thought we would need in terms of a facility that could accommodate the kind of ebb and flow over time. And we felt like 30 beds was where we landed. Right now we have 150 beds just for perspective. Um, I do wanna acknowledge that that analysis did not include DJJ realignment and the young people with those commitments. Um, so we're kind of looking at all of that now, trying to figure out what makes sense, but wanted to share that information. Okay, before I have a heart attack, mm -hmm. um, there's a conflict about how many beds we need. The, the, the uh, people who did the report thought we needed 20 beds, just wasn't that it? Something like that. I think they said Ten? Ten, I think ten. Ten beds, okay. Three but, different it's true, it's, <laughs> but it did go from ten to something else. I, I guess I am very perplexed by this number because I, in no time I've been on this commission have we had anywhere near that number in the juvenile hall. So how it ends up being the average, how many kids are in the juvenile hall? Now? So there's the average, which you can see. No, there's not eight. Young I mean, there are 10, there have been 12, there have been 14. So we when I the whole thing, how we end up with we need 30 beds is just beyond me. So I'll, I'll explain some other reasoning. One reason is that, you know, I want to remind us all that. So when I first came here as the chief, we had about 40 kids in the hall. And then the pandemic started and we went way down and we have stayed down. But we really don't know. And so this analysis actually only includes 2019. 2020 and 21. So two of the three years from this time period are actually the pandemic period. So I do want to acknowledge that. Um, I also want to acknowledge that we feel like we need the ability to move kids around. So I'll give an example. Um, we may have young people who can't be in the same space as each other for their own safety, for their own history, right? We may have, like I said, a young woman who doesn't want to be with young men. And so it's really about like, how do you have the right number of spaces for young people? to have the mobility to meet their individual needs? And how do we account for an unknown future? So this is the way that we've done this analysis. But I, like you said, Commissioner President, Mark, President Brodkin, I am acknowledging that there were different analyses done. And I'm also gonna acknowledge that this is the one that I believe in <laughs> because, because we did the analysis. And because, you know, as you can all see, the work that it will take to bring something new online, I think it would be a terrible thing to wind up with something that was too small. When the juvenile justice system was way more full in years ago, we had young people sleeping on the floor in juvenile hall, and we don't ever want to have that happen. And so I think that there's also discussions to be had about whether we create something that has spaces that can open and close, mm -hmm. right? Not that everything needs to be open at once, but when you think about what a space may look like, what does it mean to be? And then I finally will note that when we do think about the long-term young people, we also, that's an important part of the conversation too. Hey, you know what they say sometimes when you got, when you, when, you know, when they build institutions, right? They already built before they built them. You, do you know that? You, you believe absolutely. in that? You believe that saying? Uh, I, absolutely. No, it, it is a fact. 
You know, so if you build something with 30 beds, you already told the, 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 the public that you filled them beds up. So you already told everybody who invested in that property that that was filled. So that's how they buy into federal institutions. So when they open up institutions, they already sell the product. The product is 180 beds. So when you sell that product, you sell it 180 beds. So if you tell them you're selling 30 beds, that's what you sold. 30 beds, they're going to fill them beds up. Tell me, selling ten beds, you sell ten beds. So it, it is a fact that that's how we function as a society. You know what I mean? So be careful when you ask for thirty beds because you're telling us you want to fill up thirty beds. So I'm a hundred percent not telling you that, Commissioner, and I'm going to push back very strongly. Right, I, I, and I want to. I will say for history that I worked in the mayor's office when we built the current hall. And at the time, and Commissioner Brodkin came in then to, to talk about this issue, the city got federal money um, to build the new hall and to go from 138 beds to 150. They had to ask for the additional 12 beds because it was the only way at that time to get federal money. You had to be getting bigger. Um, it was a very different era. Um, and our commitment wasn't that we were going to fill the beds, but that we really needed a new space. And I think you can see that we... Over time, you've seen the hall population go way down in San Francisco. We didn't fill the beds to fill the beds. That's why there's only 12 young people today. And I do think it's an uh, important perspective that going from 150 beds to 30 is still cutting by four-fifths. But, but there are 12 so. filled today and you want 30 beds. Correct. And that has been the average the whole time I've been on the commission. Well, so I am perplexed by that, but I... I would propose that we find a way to have this debate rather than, 100%. you know, that we hear from the, the consultant who recommended 10 beds. And, and, and can I push back on my chief right quick, chief, when you said that, you said federal, federal, when you ask for federal money, federal said what they tell you. They, if you want them bed, if you want money for them beds, you got to get them bed. You, you're going to fill them. So you just kind of. They didn't, but they, they didn't. They said you have to build them, not you have to fill them. But they sold them already because that's how you got the money. I we're well, going to have to agree and disagree on this. <laughs> I'm just saying, no. I, I, I just have a couple of questions. Um, the 1055 Pine Street, is that a residential area or is that a commercial area? Yeah, it's residential. So does that mean you have to go through licensing, um, hearing, and things like that? So that would happen at any place any that we place. would build something mm -hmm. or, or buy something in San go to do this purpose right we'd have to do a kind of community engagement right making sure people understood the purpose yeah i know it's sometimes kind of difficult when it's residential in the area just you know not in my neighborhood yeah. that kind of thing pretty much everything's residential in san francisco right yeah. so, right. so it's a challenge we would have so the other question is um the suggestion for space i know where you currently have now we have garden there where you know uh People can go there and do gardening and things like that. Is it, are you considered this too? Yeah, and I should note that, I mean, we do have, we act, so gardening is an active part of the San Francisco Unified School District's program on campus. And so not in the small outdoor spaces that President Brocken was talking about on the units, but in the big outdoor blacktop space, we have garden beds and there is an active gardening process, project um, that, that the school district does. Well, I'm glad you can speak. It's good yeah. to, you know, continuity is very important. You know, they're so used to growing things like that. Yeah. And it's part of the recovery process. You know, we make that too. Yeah, and we're actually using some of our state money that came with realignment to build an outdoor kitchen so that they can do a more robust cooking curriculum with the food they grow. 
So one dumb question. So what will happen to the current place we have? Is that going to be, we don't know yet. Not a dumb question. Oh. No smart answer. <laughs> but it is an option to replace to use the current location and do yes. something different, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So the city does own the location. Yeah. Um, the city also, uh, as you know, from our budgets, um, owes money still on the existing hall for the next 13 years, I think. Um, but we do, the city owns the location. They've owned it for a long time. Um, it is a very big location and it has a fair amount of vacant space on it. Yeah. So it does offer, I believe, opportunities to think about what a different kind of campus could look like. I'm wondering, I mean, we know how to do congregate living for young people, right? We have colleges all over exactly. the country that provide programming and classroom space and places to eat and places to recreate that do it in a more home-like way, right? So we know how to do this. And I'm wondering if other states or other places have fully replaced their halls with something like what we think we want. So we haven't seen great examples of it in terms of places of detention. Mm -hmm. So generally when we have looked at models across the country, what we have found are some innovations that tend to happen after sentencing for effect, yes. right? So, um, so for young people who have gone through their case and the courts committed them somewhere, those places may look very different. New York has close, uh, close to home as their model, right? Um, the Missouri model, which gets yeah. a ton of attention, it's all post disposition. So we haven't really seen that kind of innovation. But can we split Baltimore. up which part of Baltimore's model? Baltimore. But what what's their custody model? Yeah, their custody model. Uh, that one I don't know. I will look for it. It seems like if we could split some of the functions, mm -hmm. then maybe we achieve that a little bit better. And it avoids a hall of thirty people. Right. And is, you know, the secure ST YF, YF is one and the detention is one and the longer stay is one, you know, there's, 100%. yeah. Yeah. And, and I would say commissioner, your 30 yeah. number was just about the detention. Whereas half the kids in the kids, half the people in detention now are over 18. Right. So, you know, it's even half the number that you're talking about that is actually you know the juvenile hall. Well, some of the yeah, well, some of yeah. So some the, some of the young people who are there, yeah. pre adjudication are eighteen and older. Yeah. Um. Right. I can think of three today. It's still so it's smaller. It's still it's small. But I do want to reflect on what you just said, and I want to say this very loud and clear that when I say thirty beds, I don't mean one building with thirty beds. <laughs> so whether it's small home-like places that have different beds for different populations, mm -hmm. whether you can, like I said, open or close them as you need them. That's the kind of thing that goes, to, that is in my mind, Commissioner, mm -hmm. is what is, you know, and to your point, we talk about this a lot, like college campuses have figured out a lot of things. The rub for us is that anything we create has to comply with state regulations. The state is also right now actively looking at what regulations it will change or promulgate now how it will make changes to titles 15 and 24 to meet our current needs and situation. So they're having hearings on that right now. There's an executive committee that's been formed to work on that. Um, those, are, those are very long processes, but I was in a meeting with the state about it on Friday and much of the conversation was about 18 to 25 year olds and what needs to look different, right? Everything from like what happens when your kid wants to get married while they're there or have a conjugal visit What's different, right? 
they, 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 you know, how much more do you feed a young person who's bigger? There's so many questions. And so um, I'm very curious to see whether there's also changes that come down around physical space. We have another comment here. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I just wanted to go back to the modularity of spaces mm -hmm. and I, the commissioner just, I think, brought it up again. Um, and then I was reminded of our issue around having spaces for people in local um, residential out of home placement mm -hmm. and the fact that we have been funding Catholic charities to keep a building open. If they could be modularity that could that 30 of those beds could be available to that kind of home model for out of treatment, but not detention if necessary. Yeah. I don't know if that's possible. Um, but you know, I think 30 beds, if if it's if the use of the 30 bed is more flexible, then it I think it becomes more, mm -hmm. I mean, that's another need that needs to be addressed. So for sure. And I think I would I'd say a couple of things about it. One thing is um, that we would need to be clear on what's kind of inside and outside a secure perimeter. Right. right? But I will say along those lines that it's a really big campus and where the, where the fence is right now is not where a fence needs to be. It is a large piece of land. So, you know, one option is to think about having beds that are secure. And then outside of a secure perimeter, San Francisco building, either transitional step-down housing that's non-secure, that really is just a home for the young men who may be coming out and may not have somewhere to go while they're getting their feet with their job or continuing school, whether we want to have a group home like that. So I think there's different kinds of options, but, but I will note that anything that's not um, going to fit into that secure definition needs to have a clear perimeter between it and a secure space. So, do we, we have a, did you want to make a public comment? Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> Forget it. Does anybody want to make a public comment? Is anybody on the line making a public comment? I'll get yes. back to you. Yeah. No, I'm done. This one caller in the queue. Let's hear it and then we can. Hi, caller. You can speak now. Hello. Hello? Hello? Yes, you oh, can speak now. Yeah, I'm Dan McAleer. I'm with the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. I was also a member of the Closed Juvenile Hall Working Group. And I, I just recommend, I just want to, for the information of the commission, the recommendations for the working group for the size of the juvenile hall was a five-bed home for girls, which would be a, it would be in a separate location, eight to 22 beds for pre-adjudication, and eight to 12 beds for post-adjudicated beds. And these were in separate locations. The, the the eight to twelve beds was for was for the adjudicated youths, and that was the that was the um, uh, the secure option. Um, the but the other thing is what's concerning to me is we're having a discussion about a thirty bed facility. One of the things that that drives the main thing that the the main three factors that drive. Uh, juvenile hall populations are how many kids you put in it, how long they stay, and what your alternatives are. And one of the big, one of our major focuses within the closed juvenile hall committee was the development and better usage of alternatives. Now that has not, all that has not been implemented yet. And I, I and I, I appreciate uh, Chief Miller for the work that she's done. 
but there's still a lot of work to be done on the on the utilization of detention alternatives and until that and, and you know until that takes place we can't really we shouldn't really be talking about a a a 30 bed facility particularly when you know the we've had a 90% drop in the number of kids that are referred to juvenile probation we should we should see major declines in the population and if we use uh, the the options that are even now available in a better way you know we're probably looking at a at a 10 to 15 bed maximum okay you can thank you uh mr mcalair um obviously there's differences of opinions about that and maybe there is a way to sort of sort through some of these different ideas. And I see one person in our audience raising her hand, and then I'll turn to commit my fellow commissioners. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to follow up a little bit on what um, Dan Mackler said. Um, over the last one and a half years, the low has been 10 and the high has been 17. So I want to commend the chief and her staff for keeping those numbers low. Um, you also need to know that 40% to 50% are 18 and over. So that I know the chief mentions that all the time, and I think President Brodkin did too. That's that's a big number, and those numbers are are driven by two things. My own opinion, Maria, you can correct me. One is warrants. We are picking up kids on warrants. Now, you don't know very much about warrants because there isn't really a page in your data report that says how many are outstanding, how old they are. And, and then you can tell on the admissions front, how many kids come in on warrants. Half of the admissions in May came in on warrants, five out of 10. That drives these numbers up. So we need to be doing a lot more work before an issue, a warrant is issued. We need to be checking on these youth and making sure we know. I know there are bench warrants and there are probation violations, but there needs to be a lot more scrutiny of that because that will drive the numbers down. The other thing is trying to focus on um, the youth who are entering the hall for a very short period of time, typically like six days, and how to keep that number shrinking. I think that the probation department's done a really good job of that, but I think more scrutiny will show that more of those kids could have been diverted initially and not gone into the hall. And, and then by looking at the out of county kids, which are typically 30% of the kids in the hall, how do we prevent them from staying so long in the hall? Thank you. Does anybody on this commission want to say anything else? James? I do. I thought so. You had that, I want to I, and talk. I don't know. I don't know if this is, uh, so I think you know when we talk about you know what happens and how many but you're talking how many young, how many young people are incarcerated and not and just kind of looking out and you know I can say uh, having the chief back on this like the chief is a housing complex right so she is they they get housed there the chief doesn't arrest them the chief doesn't know how many people finna get picked up you know that. And she don't, you know, she's not the one to make that decision whether they're going to come into the hall or not. So, um, but at the end of the day, I think, you know, we all as a city, San Francisco has done a great job when it comes to bringing our numbers down, having resources for our young people. And for me, I always tell them, tell everyone the buck stops with me because it happens in my community. 
and my community is responsible for our kids. So we are the ones responsible. We are the ones that should be taking on more when it comes to the work and bringing down the population of the juvenile. And it's us, and it starts here with us, you know, not you, Chief. So it's like you are just in a place where they get placed, you know, so that's just my little two cents. And I, you know, it's not the chief that makes the decision on how many people that's going to end up in the hall. But at the end of the day, it's us as a community to say, how do we just stop our kids from getting arrested? It's the police saying, hey, this is not worth me pulling you over. Let me take you, send you home. Right, let's just do something else with you in this process. So it's just that. Thank you. Any other thoughts, comments? Well, I don't agree with you. Yeah, okay. um, uh, I, I think I agree with half of what you said, which is the, the burden on the community. But the policies of the probation department absolutely do have uh, a, a tremendous impact on how many young people end up in the hall versus uh, on informal probation versus, you know, it, other places. So I, I think it's sort of half true, but not totally true. Anyway. Um, we can. So, what do you guys want to do? I think let's hear about the co-leadership thing. You want me to do the security treatment facility update? No, let's hear about the co-leadership. Okay. Um, I. I would like to say one thing about this last okay, piece. Please. I want to say a couple of things. One thing is I just wanted to give uh, one one data correction. So the average that you said, Molly, is true, 17, but we actually had 21 kids in our hall at one point in the last few months. So I want to note that we do have those peak moments. And to your point, Commissioner, that's when I feel an obligation to make sure we can receive them. Um, I do want to, I won't go through the uh, security treatment facility piece, although I, I, do you not want me to talk about the previous, the incident and the comments? I don't know what do you all want. We have you recall there was a, a an incident that we heard about um, a month ago yeah. where there was a protest of young people on the unit, and the chief was going to get back to us about what happened with that. On the other hand, we haven't talked about what was actually the major recommendation regarding the juvenile hall from the closed juvenile home group, which was that. We need a co-leadership model, so it isn't just probation running the hall. It is probation doing it in collaboration with some community agencies, one community agency, a network of community agencies. And that, I think, of all the things that group talked about, that was the thing about which there was the most enthusiasm and agreement. And so I really want the commission to be aware of that and, you know, we need to sort of stay abreast of what kind of progress and planning we need to do to actually see that as implemented. So I'm, what do you guys want to do? Want to talk about the co-leadership? Want to talk about the crisis that happened a month ago? You want to um, send yeah. something to a poor program committee is, <laughs> oh, like overwhelmed. What was the timeline? Hello. What was the timeline? What'd you say? What was the timeline about the when do we have a decision? About which 
the May the May incident. Oh, it was April April twenty sixth. Oh, April twenty sixth. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what should we do, Vice President? <laughs> I so I think, um, Commissioner Moses, you're asking how long would it talk take to get briefed on the end of April incident? Was that? Yeah, yeah. Or, I don't think so. Oh no, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. That's okay. Forget what. Okay. It's up to the will of the commission. Um, Let maybe we do both and we defer other parts of the agenda. And we figure out what we want the program committee to consider. I only have a few more slides when you combine both. So, okay. Really. okay. So, I'm going to go say on. a couple super quick things then about the security treatment facility, which really for us is unit seven. So, if you can go a couple slides, Stephen, just a couple things. Um, so, I just want to give you the current numbers. So, we have four youth so far who have been, we have received those long term commitments. Two of them are in county jail, also on adult cases right now. Um, but they will be coming our way. Um, so we have four who've received it. They range from 24 months to seven years. Uh, we have two more anticipated in the next two weeks. I think the 24th and August 4th, I want to say, are there in both of those young men's hearings, and we know they'll be getting those commitments as well. I believe they'll be four years and seven years. Um, we also have three young people in the hall who've received um, Commitments that are not SYTF, but the judge has committed to the hall. And I think this is a really important conversation because this is a relative something that we hadn't done for a long time in San Francisco when we had the ranch, when we had out of state placements, which the state decertified. Um, those young men are not all young adults, two are, and one is 15. It's a short stay in the hall, but I want to acknowledge relative to the other stays that we, it means you're looking at a, a decent number of beds that will not turnover right now. So I want to bring that up. Um, I will. So then I think I'll just go to the next slide and note that, you know, the security treatment facility, that unit, unit seven, which is likely to become more than one unit um, in the coming weeks and months. Uh, you know, we are really building that train as it goes down the track, as is every county. It is hard to do. It takes time to do. I think everybody felt like there was not enough time to develop new meaningful programs especially for young adults in facilities that are not designed for long-term care and are built for younger people. Um, so all that to say, you can see a list of programming that's being launched there. They have access to all the other programming that's on the, in the facility. They take uh, community, almost all of them are in community college courses um, and have access to the uh, CTE classes that we discussed. You can see what's starting their fitness center. They're starting to go to tomorrow. We're starting insight prison projects, victim offender education groups and success stories, um, 13 week workshops, which I'm really excited about, which they just came today and met with all the young men and it went really well. Um, those are both important because they're actually things that the judges will be looking to as part of the young men's individual plans that they will want to see them engaged in and doing. So as a reminder, you know, we are also, uh, uh, the court is also a customer in this because they sign off on all the plans that the young people have to complete it while they're in security treatment facility. I also want to just remind us all that we issued the RFP finally July 1st to fund credible messengers and family support. Come back to credible messengers in a minute. Um, and that we can also use the money to support specific needs of the kids. We're doing some important training for the for the staff who work with our young kids, they, young young adults. They have asked for training. We want to give them the kind of training that we think is important. So, 
and I bring this up because it was a follow up to the incident that I'll talk about, but we had actually scheduled a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Gina Castro Rodriguez, who a number of people are familiar with, literally a national expert on engaging young adults, trains a lot of SFPD on engaging young adults. She was supposed to come a few weeks ago to train all of our hall counselors. Um, and then uh, COVID hit one of its nasty jokes on all of us, and we had to reschedule the training. So it'll happen in the next three weeks. I was really excited to come and tell you today that all of our staff have been trained by Gina, but it will be happening. In addition, um, we're exploring having ROCA, which is an amazing program from the East Coast, come and do its curriculum for not just us, but all of our system partners and community members um, to really be asking ourselves, what is the best way to work with this age group? Um, and then we are giving the youth a lot of input into not just programming, the fitness center, obviously they picked out all of their equipment, menus, how are we gonna change what we feed them? And then on other things. And so a lot of that is actually me speaking directly to them. I want to make make sure you know that. So on April 26th, um, as you heard in the May meeting, there was an incident that happened that raised some serious concern for all of us. Um, our young men were frustrated for a lot of reasons. They're frustrated at how long it's taken for us to get meaningful programming up and running. They're frustrated because they are here in a very different way than we've ever had young people in a facility. It's a very different, uh, it's, it, there's not a lot of hope when you know you're somewhere for a number of years, and that's a really different thing for us. And they were particularly frustrated at that time because of a staffing decision that we had made on a member of our team that we had put into that unit. Um, and they made the decision as a group to have what they felt was a peaceful protest. So when it was time to go into their rooms during shift change, they instead gathered in the classroom on the unit and wouldn't leave it. Um, and it wound up being uh, kind of a standoff. We tried, our staff tried to verbally deescalate. We did not want it to turn into a physical interaction. Uh, and so it became an issue of real concern. Um, in the end, they did go to their rooms. I know people have talked about concerns that we called the sheriff or the police, that did not happen. Um, uh, but I will tell you that we were really at a loss for the best way to de-escalate the situation, um, partly because it was the first time we'd had young people really move as a unit together. Um, it's not something that's really happened to folks who've worked in the hall for many years. Uh, and uh, ultimately, um, they went to their rooms. I went that night to the hall. I met with the staff. I went to each young person's door, told them I'd come back the next day to talk to them face-to-face, -face, came back the next day. One of them did want to speak to me. We had a long conversation. I've gone back again and spoken to them as a group. Um, we've all talked about it. They've talked about it a lot. The adults have talked about it and the different lenses through which people experienced it. Um, for the young people, feeling like it was a very kind of peaceful way to make a point. For the hall staff trained in the kind of safety and security lens, being very worried about trying to de-escalate something in a way that may turn physical. Um, and they've had a lot of conversations with each other. Uh, and it was a um, kind of a patient process reintegrating everybody back out together into programming. So uh, um, folks started coming out one at a time and then everybody was back out together. But it raised really big issues um, for all of us. We understand the need to really be mindful about what a meaningful program looks like. We understand that we need to do more work on this. They've acknowledged that like that they really saw how it could be perceived differently than how they felt it was, which I thought was an interesting thing. They've told me that. 
Um, and one important thing that we did in the wake of it was that we identified a staff member in the facility who we knew they all had a very trusting and close connection with, and we put that person on the unit in a leadership role. So, so we identified a staff member on, in the facility who they all had a very positive relationship with, and we put that person on their unit in a leadership role so that they had this person who they had all expressed a lot of connection to around them for uh, more hours a day. So that was a change that we made that I think uh, was important to them. Um, so that was what happened, and I just want to brief you on that. Uh, and I'm happy to uh, pause on that or talk about shared leadership. Start a discussion about shared leadership. I'm going to ask that we get shared leader. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. I appreciate it, Vice President. Thank you. <laughs> I do as well, Vice President. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, next slide, Stephen. So, we're going to talk about shared leadership, um, and I'm going to start. I want to start by actually just putting up your own goal that you adopted on May 11th, because I feel like this is shared leadership is kind of one of those buzz phrases that has been used to mean a million different things. So let's look at how we are using it here. Um, so what you adopted is your preliminary 2023 goal for juvenile hall. I highlighted the um, in orange the part I think is most relevant for this. Implement daily community presence of community partners, shared leadership with community and city agencies whenever possible, and meaningful opportunities for community input into policies and programming. So those are our watchwords. Next slide, please. So I want to start by just making the point that I actually think this is a really important place for shared leadership. Uh, shared leadership can happen at multiple levels, but obviously the biggest one is policy and oversight. Um, and we have three bodies, you being one of them in San Francisco that are charged with different kinds of oversight and authority. Um, you are all public bodies. You all have the authority to hold hearings, hear from experts, take public comment, and the authority to issue directives to the department about different ways that we do our work and specifically about the hall. So you as, and so I just included the city charter. You also have bylaw language that gives you authority and power. Um, but so obviously your, your charge under the city charter is to formulate, evaluate and approve goals, objectives, plans and programs and set policies for the department. The juvenile, and as you all know, you are you appointed by the mayor. The Juvenile Justice Commission, which can be between 7 and 15 community members, is appointed by the Superior Court. They're really in charge of oversight of um, our institutions. So the hall, the ranch, if we had one, they have the power to visit and look at all the group homes we use. But most significantly, they're able to re uh, make recommendations to us about anything related to the operations of our facility. And then I just added, because I think it's also important in the current climate, the DJJ Realignment Subcommittee who sets our policy for our secure track kids and has to develop a plan. So we are in this place where we have these multiple bodies. And I think to me, the question is, how do we leverage what exists to develop what is in your goal as meaningful opportunities for community input into policies and programming? So how are you as a commission going to be part of that in a really big way? Next slide, please. And then in terms of what shared leadership looks can look like, you know, on the floor, right, in the programs. Um, so we have government partners, and I've listed them on the slide. We have city-funded CBOs. Most of the CBOs who are on-site receive city funding. They are chosen by competitive public solicitations. Um, 
beginning this fall, when the RFP that's out right now is done, we will actually have on-site credible messenger life coaches in the facility with our kids seven days a week during all waking hours. And I bring that up because I do think it's an important example of on-site community presence. They will be coming from CBOs. They will not be city workers and they will be there at all times in, in, alongside our staff. So that's a big change in terms of community presence. But we also will be doing an additional RFP this fall um, to bring in some more community providers and services in as well. Um, because we are in this um, period between big citywide RFPs, right? So the, the RFP that DCYF does every five years is the big driver of what our justice programs look like. But we want to do things now in the hall. We don't want to wait in this interim phase, um, especially for some of those long-term young men. And so we're going to be doing an RFP to bring some more community folks in. Um, and then as well, the other RFP that's out right now is for more family support. And we envision that that will also yield more on-site community providers through that too. So you're going to see more of that day-to-day -day presence in the hall, which I think is important and ties into part of your goal. One thing that we don't do right now is have those groups meet and have those groups work together. I don't think it's feasible for everyone to kind of sit around a large table and do it, but I do think that it's what would be important to try right now on a pilot basis is like a steering committee for our juvenile justice center for the hall, where we take some of our most active um, city partners, so the school district, health, and JPD, where the ones there every day. And then some community members who are doing that on site hall services to be meeting regularly, identifying kind of where we have gaps, where we have conflicts, what works well, what doesn't in our joint care of the kids. Um, and so I put it out for you really more to start a conversation than anything else. But this is some of this is my thinking of what, what that body could look like. I think it should be a small body that comes together and we try it out this way. I wanted to suggest that. We have two CBOs sitting on that steering committee that actually provide on-site services now that this commission would appoint one and the JJC would appoint one. Um, and I also think it would be important to have on that steering committee, um, hopefully a young adult who had spent time as a kid in our juvenile detention facility, um, who I thought the DJJ realignment subcommittee could appoint because we already have representation on that group that fits that description. And because I think it ties in well with their SYTF work. Um, so I wanted to open up for you, I guess, my questions, which are for you to discuss as a body, you know, what role can the probation commission be in having that kind of policy level leadership around the hall in making sure we're hearing community voice, parents, youth, we do that ourselves, but what can a formal process be? You know, what are you, what's, what is that? What do you, what are you looking for beyond what I'm describing in terms of increased on-site community presence and then your thoughts on this pilot proposal or other ways to do that kind of collaborative, regular in the weeds kind of operational planning together. So what I think I would like to do is give every commissioner a chance to, to at, respond to that question. I mean, um, I have responses first, I've heard this proposal, um, but the sort of new thing happening here is this idea of a steering committee that has some kind of, I would say, oversight, <laughs> uh, planning and oversight role in the juvenile hall. So I don't know if people have comments they want to make, but I think we should let everybody on the commission comment on this if they want to. 
So I'm going to start with you. Uh, I was going to start at the end. <laughs> well, I'll start here. I'll start with <laughs> Julia. Okay. Um, so I, I like this idea. I mean, we've talked about having a a young person who's been through um, DJJ realignment, maybe DJJ realignment, mm -hmm. who's been through San Francisco Juvenile Hall on the commission on such a steering committee. Um, when I was listening to your proposal, what I wondered about as well was if there are more people in the hall who are from CBOs, so there's an increase in personnel, is there a decrease in AP, um, JPD personnel? So is it just more people or are we are we shifting roles? Because if it's going to be a a co-leadership model, is it just, is it the same leadership with some other people there or is it, is it truly a shift? Sure. So I thought, um, well, why don't we let oh, okay. uh, everybody comment? Do you have anything you want to say about this? Mr. Spangola? No. Really? No, I don't. I'm surprised. <laughs> okay. Linda Martell. You, you always get a chance later. Okay, let me just ask, does anybody else want to comment on this? I, it just, I, I don't know if this is feasible, but it seems like some of the young adults with longer stays have some opinions about programming and could one of them be involved just directly? I mean, I feel like this is okay, but it's much weaker than I had hoped for and think should exist. Um, and somehow two CBOs on this committee. Um, I, I want to make sure it's it's a meaningful body. Like you, you sit down. I mean, I look at the program, and to me, the program is totally inadequate. So there has to be sort of a program planning process. Let's meet every other week and plan what the program is going to be, and let's have enough other people at the table so it isn't just you know probation with a few other people and i like your idea about having people who've experienced the hall there but i think that two cbos is not enough there are just too different too much diversity in what they can do and what they know and i don't hear any structure that says to me there is going to be sort of real co-planning but you want you call it a steering committee um so a planning committee so you know, I'm saying, like, here are the regulations for the juvenile hall now. Let's have a committee that goes through them. You know, what are the visiting policies? What kind of food do we have? You know, what, uh, how much dead time do we have? What, you know, what happens on weekends, et cetera, where we go through it and it's a committee, not just sort of ad hoc juvenile hall staff who decide that kind of stuff. And that it's a more robust committee than what I hear you describe, but I may be missing no, that. I, I will clarify. I mean, so what you're hearing me describe is not intended to be a high level policy discussion. It is intended to be the day to day working together on smooth operations, which is what we've heard is a real need collaboratively. And I, what I bring back to you is that there is a place to create a structure to have those meaningful policy discussions. And I think a lot of that discussion starts here 
with the commission because you are the body but that I works like on developing policy. The things people want to know, what are, who has, how do visitors have access? How do CBOs get in? I, the biggest complaint I hear is there's not open access to CBOs. I don't think that a commission or a, you know, that meets once a month is going to deal with that. And yet I feel like that was the guts and heart of what people want. And you, we may be using the word policy differently <laughs> because I'm thinking, what's the visiting policies? What's What's the access policies? What's the food? You know, to me, those are policies. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what I feel like dealing with the nuts and bolts and nitty gritty of what goes on in that place and getting some other eyes on that, including young people and and having a balance of power on that. So it isn't 10 probation officers and two CBOs that it's a real uh, balanced committee that is willing to sort of open the book and say, how are we going to do things differently? And what about, you know, should they really be going to school this many hours? You know, what, you get the point. Yeah, um, Chief, um, I like the idea. Um, your selection of who should participate is good, but I do feel that, um, a stronger influence from the youth who have been there or who are currently there and their families should be a part of this committee also. Representatives, not just from the CBOs, but from the CBOs who are there working with the students who have a certain lens that they're looking through that can provide us with some insight that we might not have. Um, it's a very robust idea, um, but I, I see how it can happen. But the structure of it has to be one where all, vo all voices are heard and then actions are developed. And the particular, and the voices in particular I'm thinking about are the youth, uh, young people up to what, 24, those who are there have been there, maybe they've graduated on in their families. That's great input. And then their support systems. Don't forget, each one of those students, each one of those young people have a support system somewhere, okay? Um, and making sure that those folks are able to tap in in a listening session. You know what I'm saying? Or in a, um, yeah, in some type of a meeting where their voice can be heard also. I think I think nothing, but I, I really feel that this could work. But the structure is what's the most important piece and the participants. Because it's you just like President is saying, we can't have 11 POs and two CBOs. Right. Well, and I want to be clear. No, no, that's not what this no. says. No, 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 no. It says it's... six people. Okay, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Too few. But, sorry. But, but my I... point is, okay. my point is the people that have been named to be a part of that mm -hmm. could be a part. We should also hear numbers of those who have been in the system and they are critical thinkers and they're coming back and they're telling us what, what's really going on and how it's happening, what they really need. And we need to be able to hear that. Absolutely. And, and I think that what I hear from the discussion is that, you know, and that's not what this is, right? So what, what I hear as the gap is like, what is that middle level of sharing on, make, on creating something new, right? So what I see and what I'm proposing is that 
what I, is that this is really a group to figure out in the day to day for the people who are there right now in this window working together. How do they do that better? Right? So it's not about that broader view. It's not about like this group being the one that kind of redoes everything, but it, but it, and I, and I hear the need for that too, but I don't want to diminish the need for this no, because okay. we do need to have okay. this. No, I hear, I hear the, day the people day who are operations there. that yeah. are a concern. And that's why the voice of those who are in it mm -hmm. uh, is so important. And I think what you said about parents too, mm -hmm. you know, it's like a parent there saying, hey, my kid got, <laughs> you know, this is what happened. Right. Yeah, so, and, that, and not just one parent, but, you know. Do, do parents have time for this? With parents. I thought you parents. Yeah. It, I mean, co-led. But this seems this is a this is a pilot though this is like a way to test out a co leadership model on on a topic that's a little bit smaller maybe or at least more immediate and then tweak it. Maybe I don't see it that way. I mean, I see it as yeah. There's a maybe a small group that can deal with some of the tweaks and what's going on now. But I don't see any reason to wait to say. Let's open the book here about what happens every, you know, about what the programming looks like or what the visiting policies look like or, you know, what the disciplinary policies need to be, you know, and where, and where have we failed? So that's my it. Okay, I'm going to, unless anybody, do we have any public comment on this? Anybody on the line? Okay, what are we going to do, guys? Um, we have a lot more things on the agenda. Oh, well, hearing no public comment, we will move on to what I'm not sure. Um, Chief, do you want us to make decision now on this? Or? No, no. Okay, no. just FYI, right? Yeah, no, we will take it back and do more thinking. She FYI. was asking for a kind of general input, yeah, so I think that we gave it to her. Okay, 1530. So, allegedly, we have a 45 minute agenda ahead of us. Um, anybody have any thoughts about what we can and can't do with this? Um, President Brocken, I'm happy to skip the chief's report, but we do need to do the contracts item. Okay, so I want to propose for the chief's report. Well, when we get to future agenda. Because, you know, what to do about the annual report and whether we spend a whole meeting on the annual report and can get to some of the things that you, you know, have had to postpone with the chief's report. So, um, yes, could we do this contracting fast? So, I'm going to call on item seven. And this is a result of, you know, sort of. Uh, a, a general agreement on the commission that if, when there are major contracts, we should know about them and approve them uh, ahead of time. <laughs> My favorite contract to hate was uh, <laughs> one of the precipitating factors of this. Um, but so go. Handing okay. it to Maria to do it. So Maria's going to do it. She'll be very fast. I have uh, Yes, as we all know, the commission has the power to approve contracts. We learned that this year. 
Um, this month, we are coming for the first time to seek your approval on three contracts for the new fiscal year. And also to uh, give you a preliminary proposal for how uh, the commission could proceed going forward, just to help you develop some procedures that will help us. Um, so we propose that we would present contracts for your approval at your monthly meetings in it for um, anytime we have a contract that needs approval. For every contract for which we seek approval in advance of the meeting, we would provide a short packet that would have the scope of work, the fee schedule, and a cover letter that will be telling you whether it's a new contract that we've never entered into before or a modification of an existing contract, which for the most part is like an extension or a renewal. We have, oh, we do have slides, but. Yeah, let's say we have it. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> um, we have a couple questions for you to think about, not necessarily today, but please do start thinking about it. This is based on. Next slide, Stephen. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Um, this is based on research that our finance unit did with other commissions in the city and how they operate. So some questions for you are, would you like there to be a dollar threshold? For example, $10,000, $50,000, $100,000 above which you would want to see contracts, or do you want to see all contracts regardless of the dollar amount? Another question is, do you want to limit it to certain kinds of services, certain kinds of contracts? And then a final question is, do you want to review uh, and approve contracts on a consent calendar, which can be more efficient, which you get the packet information in advance, if everyone's cool with it, it just gets approved without discussion. If you need to take things off, you can ask any questions and we can take things off the consent calendar to have the discussion and do uh, specific approval. So we will definitely be interested in your feedback on those. Next slide, last slide. These are the three contracts that we're seeking approval for the new fiscal year. The first one is for a modification to an existing contract for our case management system, which is Automon. This modification would extend the contract by two years and increase it by $354,467. The case management system is critical infrastructure. It is as important to our department, I would argue, as the building itself. We cannot operate without a case management system. That's where we do all of bookings into juvenile hall, all arrests are recorded there, petitions, dispositions, supervision, contacts, programs, literally every single thing that the probation department and juvenile hall do um, goes through our case management system. Uh, the second contract is for uh, the ombudsman, the, um, and that is a new contract for $100,000 for two years. Um, the ombudsman is part of the department's BSCC approved grievance policy, and it's also an evidence-based practice where if a young person has a grievance, they can speak to the ombudsman to resolve that grievance. And that's actually one of our performance metrics for the city is how quickly we resolve those grievances with our ombudsman, which we do very quickly. Um, and then the last is a small contract, so this kind of gives you an idea of the variety of contracts that we deal with. Um, for psychiatric services that are court ordered, again, a new contract for two years, a pretty small contract with Dr. Ralph Norbert, who is often ordered um, to provide services for our young people. 
Thank you. So do people have questions about any of these contracts? Yes, I do. Um, yes. So, you know, it's funny, you, you know, somebody was just up there earlier talking about the mental health piece. And then you look at this contract and it's $9,000 over for two years. It's just like, this is what happens. You know, when we talk about mental health, the doctor here is on a $9,000 contract. So what, you know, so, sure. so that that's one, right? It's just like, we put that at the bottom. And is your is the is the, is the hundred thousand dollar two year contract a hundred thousand dollars for two years or a hundred thousand dollars a year? A hundred thousand dollars for the two year period. So it's fifty thousand dollars a year. Yes, and those are not to exceed amounts. So um, some things we spend every single dollar down. Other times it needs to be flexible in case we need if, if the kids have a lot of grievances and there's a lot of ombudsman services needed. We need to be able to cover that with our contract. And so, so when the doctor gets, so how do that work with this contract sure. with the doctor? So, sure. And, and I would add that neither of those are new people to the work, right? So these are new contracts for people who've done the work for a long time. Um, so this is only in very specific instances. And that's the reason it's such a low amount commissioner for when the court orders this individual to provide services among other things. And I don't know if Julia remembers this from her time, but he does actual programming specific to sex offender cases. So he provides a very unique type of treatment that the court orders in specific cases, and then we're obligated to pay for his time. So to your point about it being a small amount for what is a huge issue for kids, this is just for a very specific type of treatment that's unique no, and that we only do when the judges and, order it. Yeah, and for the most part, mental health services are paid for by the Department of right. Public Health. So we make referrals to the Public Health Department they pay for it, they get federal reimbursement, et cetera, et cetera, and they have an enormous investment in mental health. So this is just a little tiny like add-on. It, it, does it seem like we should be approving things that are ordered by the court because no one has control over this? Right, so that's why we need to have the contract. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have many, many things that we do, most things we do are ordered by the court. No, but I mean, should we as a body, should, should contracts coming to us for things that the court has ordered, does that even make sense? <laughs> That's my question. Because we have no choice. Right, because the court ordered it, so. It actually doesn't, it actually doesn't, because they're gonna have to find a way to free them anyway. Yeah. So no cool. matter, it doesn't. Any other questions about these specific contracts that? So. My it, question is, do you like, have to be this out, or this is, I know the theory required that, you know, you have to bid for these kind of things? So, um, so I, I don't know the answer for Dr. Norbert, um, but I will tell you that for the others, yes, we have to go through city procurement processes for these, not for an extension, right? Right. No. But for example, for the ombudsman, that um, RFP was just right. done this year. So, so that means that after that, then that's when the commission is involved after the city already approved it. Okay. Um, I have a suggestion and it's based because you would know Commissioner Jordan because what the school board does is the, the board gets a packet of all the all the contracts and if a commissioner has questions or concerned or something you can you, and, it, and it's on a consent calendar <laughs> if you have a concern you can pull it off the consent calendar and ask questions and then you know raise issues about it. That seems to be like the most efficient way to do this. So um, I would like to propose that we actually do that and also put star or something when it's a court order and 
it doesn't even make sense to sort of raise questions about it. That's what Does doing. that make sense to people? It, it, I think it's sort of a traditional way to yeah, do this. Yeah, it makes sense to me. The other thing I was going to say is I don't know if we want to make it like $10,000 and up yeah. because I, I don't think we need Dollar to. amount. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, you know, 100000 seems like a lot to me. To That seems too high, but I don't know, ten, yeah. $50,000. Yeah, we could do that. I mean, the school board has, which has a gazillion dollar budget, right. it's a very low amount. Oh, it's pages and pages and pages every, <laughs> every meeting. It, it's... I already need my reading glasses. I think it's I, insane. <laughs> so, um, does fifty thousand sound well? I, I personally, I don't see any objection to this. I, I found it very useful to look at this. I feel like I had no idea that this money was being spent. You know, just to get a packet that we'd get electronically, so you wouldn't have to xerox a lot of money. You can see how dated I am. Xerox, a lot of money, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of paper. Um, I don't know. I don't see object to seeing all of them. And then somebody wants to pull it off. It's, you know, it just be on a list, you know. Or maybe we'd say 25 grand. Yeah, but I, I, I kind of like seeing that Ralph Norbert is getting, getting $10,000. I, I think if it's, if it were a list that had the starred court mandated and then listed the amounts so that we kind of, as commissioners know where to spend more of our time reading, right. that right. would be great. I, I am presuming that in most cases, we will not pull it off the consent calendar, you know, that it would be an unusual thing. Like when I do it, <laughs> I like the fact that the amounts are here and it explains what they're going for and the period of time. Uh, we just haven't been able to actually see the contents of the contract. That's the only thing. Uh, and that's what would be pulled for the consent so that staff could go over the contract and come back with a summary yeah. of what the money is for. So, does this make sense to people? Do we have to? Can we make that motion? Do we have to vote on it? Just, just one quick question. This is to shape. So, how? What's your suggestion on realizing that the commission meets once a month? Do you? How do you handle this kind of thing? So, for us, then it's just keeping track of when we're going to need to be getting a contract through the city system and making sure we get it on the agenda. Okay. The only time I could see it being an issue is August. <laughs> right, we won't do it um, in August. But other than that, well, you know, it takes us a while to right. contract, so we know when we're going to Yeah, and then if, if, like you were saying, um, if we can be provided with the context of what it's about prior to the meeting mm-hmm. so that yeah. we can read through it, that would be real helpful. Okay, so does anybody want to make a motion that we do this or shall we just do it by consensus? Is the next thing to make a motion, or do we have to? I don't know. Yeah, you should. I think you should vote on it. You do have it listed as an action item, but you should take public comment before you vote. Okay, so uh, I can make a motion to vote on it. On let's take public comment and then you make a motion. Is anybody dying to comment on this? 
Because if you're not dying to comment, <laughs> you're still welcome. Sorry, Jana. Okay, we have a motion. I, I have a. I am making a motion to approve the contracts as listed here because I think that's what we need to do first. I second that motion. Okay. Take the roll. President Broadkin. Yes. Vice President Cervantes. Yes. Commissioner Jordan. Yes. Commissioner Laco. Yes. Commissioner Moses. Yes. And Commissioner Spangola. Yes. You have a motion. Thank you. Thank you. Do you want to make another motion? Actually, let me let me interrupt you for a second. So uh, this is a change to your bylaws. I think you might need to, to give more notice for this vote than um why is this a change to the bylaws? I, I suggest we add this to the next agenda as an item to vote on. Because I think it says in your bylaws that you'll approve all contracts. Um, and anyway, so you're, you, I think you are doing something slightly different than what your bylaws say. So I think it would be better. I thought we were. I thought we were just looking at them and approving contracts. We're doing what the bylaws says. We're just now bringing it up, but we're already doing. It. I don't think it's changing it, John. We're just talking about whether to do it as a consent calendar going forward, right? Yeah, we're just talking about how to calendar it, Jana. Right. Uh, I, we're not putting a dollar limit on it, and we're not putting a um, a service specific limit on it. Yeah, that's specific. fine. But I, I I wasn't clear on what the motion was, but yeah. I did hear people talking about dollar amounts and. Oh, no. Different things like that. No, no. We're just yeah. agreeing that we will get a consent calendar um, every month with it. the contracts, and that people will be it will have an uh, an item on the uh, agenda where people can pull off the consent calendar if they want and have it discussed, which is sort of standard operating procedure. Does anybody want to make them? I, I, can I make a motion? I, I think we already made the motion, but is that okay, Jenna? Yeah, that's okay. Sorry. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. I make a motion to adopt the proposal to review each month all the contracts in a consent calendar format. Okay. You want to call the roll? I'll second the motion. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. President Broadkin. Excuse me, did you do public? I don't think you did public comment on this one. I know you did it on the prior one, but. But we did it on the issue. You may, this is a separate motion. It would be better if you had public, if you invited public comment on this separate question. Is there any public comment? Okay, I don't Thank you, any. Vice President. You are welcome, welcome to, interrupt, to interject anytime. Um, so, seeing no public comment, can you take the roll? President Brodkin? Yes. Vice President Cervantes? Yes. Commissioner Jordan? Yes. Commissioner Laco? Yes. Commissioner Moses? Yes. And Commissioner Spingola? Yes. Motion passes. Oh, thank you guys. I'm really happy. About thank you. Um, so can you can we enjoy your happiness by doing a super quick chief's report? Because there are two things I do want to tell you. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I take it back. So, no. <laughs> um, so just a couple of things that I will. So one thing is, um, Selena. So while I'm talking, can you just put up just the dashboard for the data, and we'll just have it up on the screen. The, the first slide. Yeah, just so we'll, you can see our main data slide while I'm talking, and I just so that we've covered that, especially because she's here. Yeah. Just so we can see our ADP and. Yeah, he's pulling up. Oh, we didn't. Yeah. 
So it didn't do the program. What slide is the most salient? Like this has our executive summary. Slide three. Yep, right there. Right there. Yeah. Okay. Do you want me to talk about it? Yeah, one minute. So while you're figuring out what you want to say about it, I just wanted to give one workforce update. So I won't go through our hires and things like that this month. But I do want to make sure folks know that Bobby Upal, who has been our juvenile hall director, is stepping back to his role in the probation division. Um, and along with that, I want to make sure folks know that the job announcement for the new for that position is open and available in the city. And we're just encouraging people to put it out to their networks. We changed the title to be the um, to be director of juvenile facilities because it has both the secure piece and the juvenile hall piece now. Um, and there's obviously explanatory language on the uh, job announcement about why this is an incredibly unique opportunity in this moment. But just all uh, all hands on deck for really getting good outreach out there uh, locally across the country, everywhere where you know someone who may be a really great partner for all of us. And as we were just discussing is this incredibly important work. So I would be remiss if I didn't make sure that I brought that up tonight. Um, and then I'll hand it to Selena to just go over the executive summaries. I want to make sure that we just hit those high points and then I promise that's all we will do. Okay. And I will also only hit a couple points on the executive summary. Uh, so talking about referrals, admissions and caseloads. So. In May, there were 43 referrals, which is an increase from May of 2021, where we were still at really historic lows, but it's lower than recent months. Um, there were also only 10 admissions in May of 2021, which is the lowest number of admissions that we've seen in a month since October. And there are 291 young people on active caseload. Uh, and I do, if I can just spend one second talking about ADP, which is on slide six. Stephen, can you take it to slide six, please? Um, so here, I just want to say that these ADP is average daily population. So these are averages, meaning that every month there are people, there are more and less than the number that you see, and that in 2021, the peak was 22 young people, and in three separate months, we had a peak of 20 or more young people in juvenile hall. That's all I will say. Thank you all for your time. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to say that I think having the executive, I think we can massage the executive summary, but I think thank you for doing that and for sort of figure, trying to figure out how to make this something we can grasp quickly the important data i have some other ideas about it but um but that's that's great urgent okay program committee um commissioner Lyko. yeah okay want to report um i'm gonna keep it uh, quick as well i think we had a really good program committee meeting we had a lot of participation um from a, a lot of different people and that's why i'm hoping this will go as we go forward, that uh, community members and, and people, particularly from CBO community, will come and lend their expertise to that conversation. Um, because I think that's how we're going to surface a lot of the issues and the things that are going to come back to the commission. So I encourage people to keep participating. Um, we talked uh, about a lot of the things that were brought up at the, the past. Uh, previous commission meeting, um, and I'm just going to talk about 2 things in particular um, that I think need to come back here for us to figure out if we want to make 
recommendations about. Um, the, the first is about uh, further examining exclusionary criteria, um, reasons why kids don't go to CARC currently. Um, so Chief Miller is exploring current JPD case policy in regard to kids who are on active probation, why they can't go to CARC or if they could or what the restrictions are in that um, situation. And I know you were talking to staff and trying to figure out uh, kind of what the options were there. So I think that's a good next step. Uh, we also spoke about out of county youth and creating a service provider consortium for the region uh, and a policy to serve out of county youth through CARC and then connect them directly to a series of service providers that are in the county where they live or in the county that is convenient to them. But that it, like kind of a consortium doesn't exist currently. We don't have a good list of providers that we think are good in, in other counties. So that's something that the commission could take on or could figure out uh, a way to facilitate. And that would mean that we wouldn't see out of county youth as an exclusionary criteria for CARC if we just figure out a way to serve them. Um, there are other exclusionary criteria that we didn't have enough time to fully discuss, including 707Bs and active warrants, and we're going to continue that discussion in the next program committee meeting. Uh, I know those are more complicated. Um, and then the second thing that I think we need to think about um, is the constraint on current CARC policy being hours of the day and days of the week, um, people, kids being turned away because CARC's not open. We heard a lot of reasons why that might make sense. They're right-sized for the population that they're serving and the times that kids were coming in and they don't wanna be open and all night paying people when no one comes in. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. But we did discuss um, Chief Miller's suggestion to consider creating a mobile unit that would be available 24 seven. And there are a lot of uh, benefits to uh, a concept like this, including being able to meet families where they are and not making them in the middle of the night come, you know, somewhere that's inconvenient um, and potentially having car counselors be able to travel to the hall um, and kind of deal with the issue of of kids, uh, the order in which they come into contact with the juvenile justice system and kind of who's the gatekeeper there. So I think figuring out what the next steps are on developing some sort of mobile unit is something that we could um, consider as a commission. But those are the the main things um, that came out to me, but I'm happy to, if other people have things that they want to raise, to please do. The, the uh, minutes are available, so if you want to see more detail on things that people said, uh, they are there. And as a reminder, in the next meeting, we want to talk about 707Bs and active warrant exclusions, and I think really try to understand where there's room for movement there. Um, and then we were going to talk about the CARC referral process within San Francisco and if CARC is really serving as the hub and spoke model and if not, how to make that the case. Um, and then there's a request to talk about traffic citations, which I know we need to involve the court to. So I don't know if we'll get to that in the next one, but that is that was on the list of unresolved things. That was fabulous. I have to say that Commissioner Laco did a fabulous job of chairing this committee. I am, <laughs> that, that was great. We need you on the committee. 
Commissioner Jordan. <laughs> so look forward to your participation in the next meeting. Can you say when the next meeting is? Uh, and you know we take off August. We don't we don't meet in August. So the next Tuesday. meeting will be in next next Tuesday at four, and um, online. And should we discuss what if? Any of the commissioners have items from today's discussion that they want to send to the program committee? I think you'll have your hands full yeah. <laughs> following up um, on the conversations you've already started. Okay, so maybe we'll finish that and then pick up the juvenile hall yeah. stuff uh, later on. I mean, the one thing that seems relevant is the chief's uh, proposal for the co-leadership model for the pilot. If you wanted to have further conversation there, we could, but it sounds like I think if you could it. include in the next chief's report, sort of your machinations, given the feedback that you've gotten here about what co co-led means. Sure. Um, I, uh, I'm, does, do we have any, um, public testimony on public comment on the, um, program committee report? There were a lot of people at the meeting. They all participated. It was a very lively and I think productive meeting. So for me, it was fabulous. So hearing no public testimony, I'm going to move on to item 10, which I'd like to point out is the last substantive item on this agenda. And it's really about what we do next. And we won't be meeting in August. So we are going to meet in September. And I had proposed in discussions with the chief that, you know, we talk about this very meaty issue that we have been talking about with the relationship between the CBOs and the department. But I would like to revise that, make a recommendation. I feel like we always shortchange the data. And my understanding is that we're going to have an annual report by September. And I feel like that what I'm learning from chairing this is that there's really only one or really substantive meetings, meeting thing that you can talk about at a meeting. So I would propose that we actually look at that. It's a summary of everything that's happened in the year and it's a chance to raise the kind of issues that, you know, are obvious from the data. And if everybody sort of committed to reviewing it ahead of time, then I, the commission's been really good about saying, hey, I want to look at page such and such because this piece of data is scary to me or this one deserves a gold star. Or So I, I think it's worth a whole meeting to sort of look at our annual report and use it as an opportunity to educate ourselves and raise issues and get caught up and then use the October meeting to talk about the issue um, that was really core part of our recommendations about the relationship between JPD and the community agencies. And if that makes sense to people, um, then I think at the September meeting, we can talk about November and December. I'm making this easy, guys. That makes sense to me. Sounds <laughs> like a plan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, now you can always contact me and Pauline if you have other things that you want to make sure get talked about. Um, oh. 
Yeah, this is an action item. Do we have to take public comment? Say that again. It says it's an action item, the future agenda. Oh, well, yeah. So um, I, I don't think we have to do a motion to sort of approve okay. uh, uh, the uh, a sort of calendar of how we're going to deal with the next couple of meetings. We haven't done that in the past. But if anybody wants to make any comments, who's either a public, public comment on issues that you want to make sure. Oh, my God, I'm looking at um, Molly. Molly. Yeah. And here's what's going to happen when we get to the annual report, we will talk about the AB 12 kits and what the <laughs> annual report does and doesn't tell us about these kids. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay. Any public no hearing that seeing no public comment. I'm going to move on to the last item. Does the adjourn what? What time is it? 8.45. I am going to declare the meeting. <laughs> she did what? Oh my God, I ate all you declared the meeting. Put the garbage in here. I don't want you going to tell nobody. Well, last time I sat next to no, we, I mean, I'm glad we got in the habit of bringing snacks. Yeah. Wait, Pat, hold on a minute. Oh, Chief, can I ask, is there, can I ask you, but I don't, how you doing? I said, fine, when I, when I was here, ooh, when I came to visit her, but one class. And then I saw you again. I was going to do the stuff. No, you're not. No, you're not. You always bring the noise, though. I like Can't do it. As long as you don't bring it on me, we're good. I didn't know what you were doing. No, but I'm glad you brought up what you brought up about the six kids. I'm working on Hello, Pauline. This is Stephen. Hello.
Hello, Pauline.